This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 202nd edition of the program. Today is Friday, July 19th, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either sign up for the very first time to support us this week or increase their monthly pledge if they were already supporting us. And that includes Ahmed Bilal, Alma Gasling, Antifes, Babette Villasenor, Bill Whitson, Blush Pandayina, Brandon Perry, Candy Rise, Carly Brammel, Christian Contreras, Christian Kudos, Christopher, Constance T. Smith, Cruz, Daniel Ragland, DM Herzer, Douglas Pike, Eric Hovland, Chris Fairbrother, Lane Davis, Michael Curland, Noah McCurry, Poet on Standby, Roy Lover, Serena Blaze, Spencer Ray, Tanner, The Giga Dweebus, Zamelo, Young Kang, and Zachary Courier. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So this week on the Humanist Report podcast, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley responded to Donald Trump's racist tirade on Twitter. Lindsey Graham calls them communists, and Bernie Sanders called out Joe Biden's totally absurd lies about Medicare for All. We'll take a look at migrant detention facilities, otherwise known as concentration camps, and I'll let you be the judge as to what they should be called. We'll look at Bernie Sanders' interview with Robert Costa of the Washington Post, and we will take Bernie Sanders' quiz to determine if we can tell who said what about Medicare for All when it comes to Joe Biden, Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, or health industry executives. We'll talk about how House Democrats are going after AOC's chief of staff, Saikot Chakrabadi, and I will interview Anthony Clark, who is running for Congress. And finally on the program, I'll make my debut on Prager U. Not necessarily, but you know, it'll be funny, so stick around. So that's what we've got today on the agenda. Hopefully you guys will uh, enjoy the program. Let's go ahead and start the show. So we spent a pretty good portion of last week's show talking about how Nancy Pelosi was relentlessly and viciously going after freshman members of Congress, members of the squad, which includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. And this week, somebody else in a very powerful position is choosing to single them out and target and attack them. It's Donald Trump. And what he's saying about them isn't just factually incorrect, it's mind-blowing. So this is what he tweeted about them on July 14th. So interesting to see, quote, progressive Democrat congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt, and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously 
telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came, then come back and show us how it's done? These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements. So he's saying, how dare these women tell us, the greatest country on the planet, how our country is to be run? Hey, dipshit, they're members of Congress. They reside in a co-equal branch of government. So first of all, your criticism isn't even valid because they are running the country. Second of all, it's also not valid because these are not immigrants. The only one who is an immigrant is Ilhan Omar, but Rashida Tlaib, AOC, and Ayanna Presley, they were born in the United States. So when you're telling them to go back to the country that they came from, that doesn't even fucking make sense. But we all know exactly why he's doing it. Because these are women who are brown and black, so they can't possibly be Americans. It must obviously have been the case that they moved here from a foreign country, and now these immigrants are telling us how to run our country which is the greatest country ever absolutely unacceptable see i can criticize america and say let's make america great again implying that it's not currently great but if they criticize america they must hate our country i mean this is such an overt racist attack that it's difficult to really even supplement this with commentary it just speaks for itself but Obviously, there were people who took some issue with what he said here and called it racist because it pretty obviously is. But then the response from people on the right, they said that individuals who said this is racist are actually the ones who are race baiting. So you're not allowed to call Donald Trump's comments here racist. Otherwise, you're a race baiter. Except what was his original tweet? Was that not race baiting? Like, you can't call things that are racist racist because that's offensive. See, this anti-SJW hysteria has come full circle. It originally started because people are too sensitive. You know, you're not allowed to speak out against things that are offensive. But now, saying that something is offensive has become offensive in and of itself. <laughs> it's all come full circle. But I digress. Getting back to Donald Trump. So... Rather than apologizing for this insanely idiotic tweet that he put out, which nobody expected him to, but rather than apologizing, he said, no, it's actually them who need to apologize to me. Not kidding. So here's what he tweeted out afterwards. When will the radical left congresswomen apologize to our country, the people of Israel, and even to the office of the president for the foul language they have used and the terrible things they have said? So many people are angry at them and their horrible and disgusting actions. So his response is pretty much, um, no you. <laughs> Mr. President, um, don't you think you should apologize for saying something so egregious? No, you. I didn't say something outrageous. They've said things that are outrageous. So they should apologize to me, to the office of the presidency, which means to me, to the people of America, and to Israel. Why are you randomly invoking Israel? Like, you're outraged because they're criticizing America. But then he brings up Israel. Is Israel, like, the 51st state? Why are we talking about Israel exactly, Trump? The man is a fucking moron. 
But at a press conference, he doubled down, and he didn't just double down. He said things that are even more absurd and things that are downright dangerous. If you're not happy here, you can leave. And that's what I say all the time. That's what I said in a tweet, which I guess some people think is controversial. A lot of people love it, by the way. A lot of people love it. But if you're not happy in the U.S., if you're complaining all the time, very simply, you can leave. You can leave right now. I mean, I look at the one, I look at Omar. I don't know. I never met her. I hear the way she talks about Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has killed many Americans. She said, you can hold your chest out. You can, when I think of America, huh? when I think of Al-Qaeda, I can hold my chest out. When she talked about the World Trade Center being knocked down, some people, you remember the famous some people. Uh, these are people that, in my opinion, hate our country. And in one case, you have somebody that comes from Somalia, which is a failed government, a failed state, who left Somalia, who ultimately came here, and now is a congresswoman who's never happy says horrible things about Israel, hates Israel, hates Jews, hates Jews. They're socialists, definitely. As to whether or not they're communists, I would think they might be. A politician that hears somebody where we're at war with Al-Qaeda and sees somebody talking about how great Al-Qaeda is. Pick out her statement. That was Omar. How great Al-Qaeda is. These are people that hate our country. But, but. John. They hate our country. But they hate it, I think, with a passion. Okay. Now, it's possible I'm wrong. The voter will decide. But when I hear the way they talk about our country, when I hear the anti-Semitic language they use, when I hear the hatred they have for Israel and the love they have for enemies like Al-Qaeda, then you, you know what? I will tell you that uh, I, do, I do not believe this is good for the Democrat Party. It doesn't concern you that many people saw that tweet as racist and that uh, white nationalist groups are finding common cause with you on that point. It doesn't concern me because many people agree with me. It's insufferable listening to this idiot speak. But essentially, the takeaway is, if there's any takeaway, you're not allowed to ever criticize America, ever. Otherwise, I'm going to say that you hate us if you criticize us. But please, you know, forget the fact that my slogan literally implies that America isn't perfect and that maybe criticism is, in fact, um, warranted. But you probably shouldn't criticize America, and you especially should not criticize America if you're black or brown. Only white people who are the real Americans should be able to criticize America. But let's, let's get to what he said about Ilhan Omar, because... This is when he took the situation and made a bad situation exponentially worse. He claimed that she, quote, hates Jews, and then he lied and said that she praised Al-Qaeda. She absolutely never praised Al-Qaeda. But he's saying here, she praised Al-Qaeda and she hates Jews. Do you understand how dangerous this is? He's telling his low-information racist supporters that this person is dangerous. We have an Al-Qaeda sympathizer in Congress who also hates Jews. I mean, she gets death threats on a daily basis, as does AOC. But the President of the United States is saying that a sitting member of Congress praised Al-Qaeda. I mean, this is... This is deranged. This is absolutely insane. One, because it's a lie, and two, because this could get her killed, literally. 
Why are we not talking about invoking the 25th Amendment? He's mentally unstable. Somebody with a brain wouldn't do something like this. This is not normal behavior for anyone, let alone a fucking president. He's communicating to all of his supporters that you should be afraid of Ilhan Omar because she's an Al-Qaeda sympathizer, she hates Jews, and also she hates America. And she's not one of us. So if she doesn't like the country, then um, she can leave. And anyone else who criticizes America, they can leave too, even if they're American citizens. What he's saying, the rhetoric that he's using, it sounds incredibly similar to a segment that we saw on Fox News from Tucker Carlson, somebody who is very influential on Donald Trump, somebody who Donald Trump watches. So this is why when I talked about that segment, I said that Tucker Carlson is dangerous and he's a white supremacist because what he says resonates with the president. And now we see Donald Trump echoing the same sentiment about Ilhan Omar. What a bizarre and just morally grotesque thing that we are seeing before our very eyes. And this isn't like a closed-door meeting where he said all of this about Ilhan Omar and the squad. He said this at a fucking press conference, and yet we're not allowed to say that this is racist, otherwise we're race-baiting. Unreal. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, members of the squad, all four congresswomen, they held their own joint press conference where they responded, and they basically said, look, this is a distraction. He can't defend himself based on policy and he can't debate us on the substance of the issues that we talk about so this is why he frequently just goes after us because of our identities this is what they said i encourage the american people and all of us in this room and beyond to not take the bait this is a disruptive distraction from the issues of care concern and consequence to the American people. He would love nothing more than to divide our country based on race, religion, gender, orientation, or immigration status. Because this is the only way he knows he can prevent the solidarity of us working together across all of our differences. The only way to prevent us confronting the problems our country is facing whether it is health care, climate change, student debt, or our endless wars. I am not surprised that he used, uses the rhetoric that he does when he violates international human rights and takes thousands of children away from their families. I am not surprised that he has turned our public education system under the leadership of Betsy DeVos into a cash cow to enrich himself and his friends. I am not surprised when he corrupts via the Secretary of Transportation. I am not surprised at what he's doing. But I also know that we're focused on making it better because we don't leave the things that we love. And when we love this country, what that means is that we propose the solutions to fix it. We cannot allow 
these hateful actions by the president to distract us from the critical work to hold this administration accountable to the inhumane conditions at the border that is separating children from their loved ones and caging them up in illegal, horrific conditions. Now, when people say, if you say a negative thing about the policies in this country, you hate this country. To me, it sort of speaks to the hypocrisy. And Alex and I were talking about this. When this president ran and until today, he talked about everything that was wrong in this country and how he was going to make it great. And so for him to condemn us and to say we are un-American for wanting to work hard to make this country be the country we all deserve to live in, it's complete hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I, I don't think it would have changed anything because, first of all, he made statements that were blatantly untrue. So whether he was citing comments or not citing comments, if he didn't have what he wanted to say, he would make it up. This president operates in complete bad faith. He does not operate in, in good faith. Weak minds and leaders challenge loyalty to our country in order to avoid challenging and debating the policy. This president does not know how to make the argument that Americans do not deserve health care. He does not know how to defend his policies. So what he does is attack us personally. And that is what this is all about. He can't look a child in the face and he can't look all Americans in the face and justify why this country is throwing them in cages. So instead, he tells us that I should go back to the great borough of the Bronx and make it better. And that's what I'm here to do. Now, on top of what they said there, um, they also called for his impeachment, not because he said these things, but they went on to list the numerous crimes that he's committed, the numerous violations of the Constitution that he has committed and is currently committing. Because the day he was sworn in office, since he didn't put his businesses in a blind trust, he was in violation of the Emoluments Clause. So I think it was important for them to also bring up impeachment. Now, everything that they said here, incredibly, incredibly important. Because when you juxtapose Donald Trump's policy agenda with theirs, there's no contest. Like, he can't compete with them based on the merits other arguments he just can't because everything he's saying is incredibly unpopular tax cuts for the rich you know taking away health care so what does he do he has to question their loyalty to the country so what they're saying is correct but the difference is that they can make this very persuasive argument this counter argument but donald trump has the bully pulpit he's the president of the united states so any and everything that he says will automatically be 10 times louder than anything that they say so like this is such an unbelievable story to me it's like donald trump he's known to say idiotic things because i think his mental capacity is rapidly declining so at what point are we going to hold him accountable when will nancy pelosi actually use the power that she has to do something well, the answer is never, because she announced that this is what she's going to be doing in response to Donald Trump's comments here. She announced that they're going to be voting on a House resolution to condemn his comments. So this is definitely 
gonna put him in his place way more than impeachment ever could. Now, I'm not saying that we impeach him because of this. I'm just saying you have more than enough ammunition with regard to impeachment, but you're not using it. You're holding a House vote on a resolution that will be functionally useless to condemn his remarks. Nancy Pelosi is beyond hopeless. She's so useless. This is the best that she can come up with. See, this is why Donald Trump continues to do things like this. It's because he knows there will never be any consequences for his actions and things that he says that are downright dangerous. Tie his hands. He's in violation of the emoluments clause. In the Mueller report, there were 10 different instances where he committed obstruction. He violated campaign finance laws. Michael Cohen brought the check and showed it to everyone. Tie his hands. Make it so he can't do anything but think about impeachment. So he's not thinking about maybe we should bomb Iran. Maybe I should target these female members of Congress and suggest that they're not loyal to the country and that they hate our country, tie his hands so all he can focus on is impeachment, not only because morally and legally speaking, that's the correct course of action, but because also as a strategy, it's the right thing to do. But of course, you know, you can never expect Nancy Pelosi to to do the right thing because her donors don't want her to impeach. So she's going to listen to them over everyone else. But I don't want to make this about Nancy Pelosi. This is about Donald Trump. And what he said here is downright dangerous. Lindsey Graham appeared on a recent taping of Fox and Friends, and he took some time to suck off the president and talk about how great he is at golfing. He then went on to fearmonger about Iran and why we should definitely go to war with them and further escalate. And then finally, he turned his attention to AOC and members of the squad, freshmen, congresswomen, who Donald Trump recently attacked via Twitter. Now, he went on an unhinged tirade against these women himself, where he calls them all kinds of names and just says things that are factually incorrect and downright bizarre. But what's odd to me is he's going to do all of this and say all of this while claiming moral high ground. He is essentially trying to present himself as the adult in the room who is kind of tacitly condemning Donald Trump's remarks about them. He's saying, maybe he shouldn't do this. But in the process, he's saying, well, you know, it's true that these women are all of these horrible things that Donald Trump says, but maybe don't say this. So, I mean, the rant is bizarre and unhinged, but he presents himself as the grown-up, and it's absurd. So watch, and then we will discuss when we come back, because... What a joke Lindsey Graham is. I want to ask you a question about the election, because there are a lot of polls that say if the if the election were tomorrow, the president wouldn't win. What does the president need to do to ensure a win? Make sure it's not tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> so, no, he's going to win. If he'll just miss president, you're going to win. Just knock it down a notch. In what, we, in what way? Well, we all know that AOC and this crowd are a bunch of communists. They hate Israel. They hate our own country. They're calling the guards uh, along our border, the Border Patrol agents, concentration camp guards. Uh, they accuse people who support Israel of doing it for the Benjamins. Uh, they're anti-Semitic. 
They're anti-America. Don't get down. Aim higher. We don't need to know anything about them personally. Talk about their policies. Senator, those sounds, tweets were negative? Uh, think? I think they're American citizens who are duly elected that are running on an agenda that is disgusting, that the American people will reject. Talk about what it means for America to have free health care for illegal immigrants and no criminalization of coming into the country. See, see how that works for controlling immigration. Their ideas, they're anti-Semitic. They talk about the Israeli state if they're a bunch of thugs, not victims of the entire region. Uh, they, they wanted to impeach Trump on day one. They're socialist. They're anti-Semitic. They stand for all the things that most Americans disagree with. Make them the face of the future of the Democratic Party. Senator, you will destroy the Democratic Party. It sounds like you're saying the president went too far with these. Tweets. I just don't think you aim higher. You don't need to. They are American citizens. They won an election. Take on their policies. Ladies and gentlemen, that is who a lot of people in mainstream media claim is a moderate Republican. <laughs> I mean, what do you say about that? That was unhinged. That was such a stupid rant. It was completely incoherent. It was also contradictory. And I have a question for people. Before we talk about the substance there, not that there was any substance, but before we talk about the substance, for all of the people who claims to have left the Democratic Party or quote-unquote walked away because they're sick and tired of the Democratic Party's identity politics, aren't you getting tired of the Republican Party's identity politics because that's exactly what we just saw. Lindsey Graham invoked identity politics and claimed that any and all criticism of Israel is tantamount to anti-Semitism because he claims that these women are anti-Semitic and anti-American and the only thing that he cited to validate that claim was that they accuse people who support Israel of doing it for the Benjamins. In other words, they said this thing that offended me. They're anti-Semitic. I mean, I thought that it was the right who's supposed to be against the use of identity politics, who shouldn't be offended so easily by things and call any and everything racist or Islamophobic or bigoted or whatever. See, when the Republican Party does it, and when they repeatedly invoke white identity politics and freak out about immigrants, well, you know, it's fine because they're Republicans. So their concerns, when they take offense to things, it's valid. But when the left does it, when the Democratic Party does it, it's invalid. Now, that's not to say that the Democratic Party does not weaponize identity politics to punch left. But if you're claiming that it's only the Democratic Party who does this, then you're just factually incorrect and you're not paying attention. Now, he claimed that um, these are a bunch of socialists, and then he also said that they're a bunch of communists. So, um, I don't know which one it is. And whenever somebody says that AOC or Bernie is a communist, force them to define what they think that means. Because nine times out of ten, in fact... I would wager 10 times out of 10, they don't even know what communism is or means and they can't describe it. He then urged Donald Trump to not talk about them and to rather talk about the policies that they are promoting. Because if Donald Trump, quote, makes them the face and the future of the Democratic Party, you will destroy the Democratic Party. Oh, so you want to talk about policies? Are you sure about that, Lindsay? Because I'm pretty sure that if we juxtapose our foreign policy with your foreign policy and any policy, nine times out of 10, in fact, again, 10 times out of 10, the American people are going to side with us and not you. Because right before he made that silly argument, he was talking about why we need to escalate 
with Iran. The American people, even though we're being bombarded with propaganda, we're against war with Iran. We're against all of these regime change interventionist wars. So time after time, even if you fearmonger and try to make the case that we should be invading every single country on the goddamn planet, people don't agree with you, Lindsay. They agree with us. And when it comes to policies, what are the policies that AOC and other members of the squad are championing? Medicare for all, taxing the rich, regulating Wall Street, all things that are incredibly popular. So this is why Trump doesn't talk about policy. One, because he doesn't know anything about policy specifics. He's not a policy wonk. He just regurgitates whatever Fox News says. And two, because if you do juxtapose your policies with ours, you lose every single time. So he brought up some examples. So let's try to parse out these examples here. He says, talk about what it means for America to have free health care for illegal immigrants. Free health care for illegal immigrants. First of all, we're saying we should have free health care for everyone where health care is free at the point of service. But why would you include illegal immigrants? And why do you think that's popular? Because all you have to do is explain to American people why undocumented people need health care too. Because let's say, hypothetically speaking, if an undocumented immigrant is bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake, and they need the antidote, do we not give that to them? Do we just watch them die because um, they're undocumented immigrants? If the answer is you let them die, if somebody is dying and bleeding out and needs immediate medical attention, if your answer is we let them die and we don't give them medical attention, then you're a disgusting human being. There's no way around that. So if you truly don't want people to move here, Lindsey Graham, then maybe you should stop backing all of these interventions and regime change wars and meddling where that actually increases the number of immigrants who want to move here because they wouldn't be seeking refugee status here or asylum here if we didn't fuck up their country to begin with, you moron. And he also says that we should talk about how they wanted to impeach Donald Trump on day one because he was in violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution on day one, dipshit. So you claim to be from the party that is pro-law and order. So are you or are you not law and order? Because being law and order means you have to abide by the Constitution. And if the president is in violation of the Constitution, then Congress must exercise their power to impeach because nobody gets to be above the law. I don't care if you're president or a member of Congress. If you're breaking the law and violating the Constitution, then you have to be impeached. So everything that he's saying here is not just wrong, but it's idiotic, it's unhinged, and yet he claims to be the grown-up. Lindsey Graham is not the grown-up. He's an idiot, and he's immoral, and all he cares about is power and his own personal status, which is why he went from attacking Donald Trump in 2015 to now gargling his fucking nuts in his mouth. Because he knows that you're not going to make it in the 2019 version of the, Repu of the Republican Party, unless you kiss Donald Trump's ring. So he's doing what he needs to do, and he's conforming. He's becoming a Donald Trump sycophant. So he is a spineless individual who has absolutely no room to talk, and if he genuinely believes that, you know, he should put, pit his policies against ours, then uh, I'm down for that, because you will lose every single time we do that, Lindsey Graham. So last week, we talked about how Joe Biden was lying about progressive policy proposals like Medicare for All. And this week, he is continuing with that same trend. He's lying. 
And now he is name dropping other progressives in the race who support policies like Medicare for all. So we're going to get to what Biden said. And then I'm going to tell you Bernie Sanders response, because finally, Bernie Sanders is beginning to take off the gloves. And that is long overdue, because if you're going to sit here and lie about Medicare for all, then you deserve to be attacked because you are propping up a system that incentivizes profit over people. And that's immoral. That makes you a bad person. But Joe Biden is rich, so he doesn't have to worry about losing health insurance. This is just about maintaining the status quo. That's why he's running. He's saying, if I become elected, nothing will fundamentally change. He says this to rich elites in a closed-door meeting. So he is the status quo candidate. And he continues to attack these new bold progressive policy proposals that he was too chicken to fight for when he was in power. So here's what he said specifically. According to Kate Gluck of the New York Times, he said, quote, I admire the rest of the field, from Bernie to Elizabeth to Kamala, who want, you know, Medicare for all. But let me tell you, I think one of the most significant things we've done in our administration is pass the Affordable Care Act, Mr. Biden said, to applause here Saturday morning, referencing the signature health care measure passed under the Obama administration. He said that he wanted to strengthen the Affordable Care Act and to add a public option, something he acknowledged could come with a significant price tag. But it doesn't cost $3 trillion and it can be done quickly, he continued, when asked about differences among the Democratic candidates, quote, I don't know why we'd get rid of what in fact is working and move to something totally new. And so there are differences. Bernie's been very honest about it. He said of Medicare for all. He said, you're going to have to raise taxes on the middle class. He says it's going to end all private insurance. I mean, he's been straightforward about it and he's making his case. So here, Joe Biden is being a disingenuous smear merchant. He's saying Bernie Sanders wants to raise your taxes. The implication is Bernie Sanders is trying to harm you. But what he's leaving out, conveniently so, is that if we raise taxes to pay for health care, you're no longer going to be paying your monthly health insurance premium, co-pays, deductibles, and overall you end up saving thousands of dollars per year if you are the average American. So he's lying. This is a lie. Joe Biden, even though he's a dumb guy, he's intelligent enough to know the policy details. He knows that Medicare for all is better for people, but he's trying to frame it as something that's radical and new when the Affordable Care Act was something that was new. It was a new idea cooked up by the Heritage Foundation and was implemented by Mitt Romney, and it was a response originally to the support that was emerging for single payer. And Bernie is the one who's saying, look, let's take our existing system and let's tweak it. Let's improve Medicare first, close all the gaps, and then we'll just expand what we already have. That simple. And then everyone will have healthcare, it'll be free at the point of service, and then nobody will die if they can't afford insurance. But Joe Biden's lying. Now, Bernie responded, and thankfully, he's starting to get a little bit more forceful in pushing back, because these are lies, and you need to treat them very seriously, because this is harmful. So here's what Bernie said. In an interview, Mr. Sanders, who introduced the Medicare for All Act in the Senate, and sometimes comes in second to Mr. Biden in early polls, bristled at Mr. Biden's remarks, as he stressed that he, too, had been committed to passing and protecting the Affordable Care Act, 
even as he now advocates for something more far-reaching. He also took issue with what he perceived as Mr. Biden's suggestion that the transition to Medicare for All could leave people with gaps in medical care, calling such an implication totally absurd. Obviously, what Biden was doing, Mr. Sanders said, is what the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical industries, Republicans, do, ignoring the fact that people will save money on their health care because they will no longer have to pay premiums or out-of-pocket expenses. They will no longer have high deductibles and high co-payments. Asked whether it was fair to put Mr. Biden in the same category as the insurance and pharmaceutical industries given his role in advancing the Affordable Care Act in the first place, Mr. Sanders replied, the charge that he's making is exactly what the Republicans are saying. And this is exactly what Bernie Sanders needs to do. Take the fucking gloves off. Don't preface any criticism you have of Joe Biden with, well, you know, Joe Biden is a friend of mine, but take the gloves off. Start really saying what Joe Biden is about. He's propping up a system where people are dying. People are dying because of our current system. Joe Biden has blood on his hands because he refuses to challenge the for-profit healthcare industry that profits off of ripping people off who need healthcare. Take the gloves off. And he's finally starting to realize that this is what you have to do. No more playing nice. No more playing nice with people who don't care about human beings and their suffering. He only cares about getting elected. And he knows, Joe Biden knows, that part of getting elected means you have to take lots of money from the pharmaceutical industry, from the healthcare industry, and that means you also have to do their bidding. No more playing nice, take the gloves off, and rip him a new fucking asshole because that's what's warranted. Because if you're going to prop up a pro-death system, then that's what you should be called. Someone who is advocating on behalf of a pro-death system where we don't prioritize healthcare, we prioritize profit, which means there's going to be a lot of casualties as a result. Thousands of people will die every single year if we keep the current system in place. And even if we get a public option, with which I don't believe that Joe Biden actually supports because he didn't even push for it when him and Obama had power, when they had a supermajority. So even if we got that, though, people would still be left out. Because if you don't have a penny to your name and you need health care, you still can't afford it. You can't afford a public option. A public option that will inevitably be watered down by the for-profit market forces that you are leaving intact under your bullshit incrementalist approach. Now, Bernie also tweeted a little bit more about this, saying... Human lives are more important than corporate profits, period. Hashtag Medicare for all. Our dysfunctional system is designed not to provide healthcare in the most cost-effective way, but to make as much money as possible for insurance and drug companies, investment banks, and real estate firms. That's wrong, that's immoral, and we are going to change it. Under Medicare for all, you will never lose coverage, even if you change jobs, turn 26, move to another state, have a pre-existing condition, start a business, get laid off, get divorced, retire early. Not crazy. Passing Medicare for all and guaranteeing healthcare like every other major country, actually crazy? A healthcare system designed to make as much profit for corporations as possible while letting ordinary people die. Now, he also talked about how he campaigned for and defended the Affordable Care Act. And I love everything that he's saying here, but he's got to go a step further. He's got to tie Joe Biden's name to it. Attack him. Hit him hard, Bernie, because this is what you have to do to win. Other people are starting to creep up on you. Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, they're getting close to you in the polls. 
And Joe Biden, even though he's coming down, he's not coming down fast enough. So take the gloves off. Put Joe Biden on defense. Because what Kamala Harris showed was that he doesn't know how to defend himself. He doesn't know how to defend himself. Call him a shill because he is a shill. Like, Bernie has got to start getting tough. Like, this is your last shot. This is your last chance to become president. I mean, I think that Bernie Sanders largely is running a good campaign. He knows what he's doing. And he's not wrong to stay issues focused. But he's got to take the gloves off. He's got to attack. There's a reason why people like Kamala Harris are gaining in the polls. It's because they've taken the gloves off and they are attacking Joe Biden and exposing him for the fraud that he is. If you want to also climb in the polls, Bernie, you've got to do that too. He's calling out your signature policy. So you have every right to respond and attack it as viciously as he's attacking Medicare for all. So, I mean, Bernie Sanders has got to take the gloves off and he started to do that here, but take it a step further. Call him out by name. Call out the donations that he has received from the health insurance industry. Put him on the defensive. Because if you really want him to shut up about Medicare for All and stop attacking it, that's what you've got to do. Because once Kamala went after him for talking about how wonderful these segregationists were in Congress that he worked with, he stopped talking about it. So he's someone who doesn't respond well to criticism because he's a narcissist. So attack him and watch him unravel. It's that simple. You've got to take the gloves off. You didn't draw first blood if you respond to an attack that he lobbed against you initially. You're just responding to criticism. It's that simple. So keep this up, Bernie, but go harder because that's the only way you're going to win. Bernard sat down for a nearly hour-long interview with Robert Costa of the Washington Post, and I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Bernie Sanders was really at his best, and the entire thing was phenomenal. I'll link to it down below if you want to watch it, but I want to show you some highlights here and what I found to just be great, because not only did he make some great points about the state of the 2020 race, as well as what his presidency would look like, but he didn't hesitate to take some 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 pretty bold shots at the venue itself, uh, which I found the most entertaining. Thanks so much for being here. Is Bank of America really sponsoring this? I, well, let's okay. just get into the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The awkwardness that you can hear in um, the interviewer's voice, Robert Costa, it was palpable, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. <laughs> This is why I love Bernard. He's at his best when he's outspoken, when he doesn't hold back. You can tell when Bernie is pulling punches, but when he just, you know, is himself, it comes across as organic and it's just, he shines and he really shined throughout this entire interview. But I've got two more really short, um, less substantive clips here. So Bernie was asked about what Joe Biden said in the event he were the nominee and he went up against Donald Trump. And his response was that he would consider challenging Donald Trump to a push-up competition or something along those lines in the event Donald Trump questioned if Joe Biden was weak or something along those lines. Bernie's response here was perfect. Vice President Biden said in terms of fighting President Trump, beating President Trump on Morning Joe this morning, he, he may challenge the president to push-ups. I have no comment on that. That was the best response ever. It was short but sweet. 
but effective. Because look, that level of stupidity, it really shouldn't be dignified with a thoughtful response. What Joe Biden is going to do if he becomes the nominee, which I hope he doesn't, but in the event he's the nominee, it's going to be a gigantic pissing contest between him and Donald Trump. Whereas if Bernie Sanders was the nominee, we know that it would be about the policy substance. Donald Trump would inevitably call him crazy Bernie, tweet about him, attack him, but Bernie Sanders would remain glued to the policy agenda, and that's how you win. So you can't really dignify these things that Joe Biden says because he also has this kind of I'm a tough guy persona, which is just, it's insufferable to me. It's insufferable. Like, who does that play to? Does that really play to members of the Democratic Party? Is that going to excite them to come out and vote for you? I think Joe Biden thinks so because he's a narcissist like Donald Trump, and it's insufferable. So Bernie's response there was absolutely perfect. Um, but one last thing I want to uh, touch on here before we start getting into the policy details is a question about busing came up. The interviewer was trying to frame it as if Bernie Sanders made an anti-busing statement, so Bernie would be technically in the same camp as Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders shut that shit down in a beautiful way. In 1974, you said that busing policies were well-meaning in theory, but sometimes result in, quote, racial hostility. What else did I say in that? Tell me. No, you got it there. Read read the whole quote. I don't have the whole quote. The whole quote is the federal government doesn't give a shit about African-Americans. That is true. That's why I didn't include it. Sure, Sure, Jan. That's definitely why you didn't want to include it, because, you know, it was a curse word. Even though Bernie Sanders said the curse word and you didn't censor what he said. There was no bleep. So, you see, this is what the media tries to do. They try to take Bernie Sanders out of context so people will hear what he's saying and interpret his words in a different way than they are intended to be interpreted. I mean, the same thing happens when it comes to raising taxes to pay for Medicare for All. They'll often ask Bernie, do you think that Medicare for All would require you to raise taxes on the middle class? Bernie Sanders gives a thoughtful answer, and he says yes, but they'll be saving money, but they don't actually report the main point. They bury the lead intentionally so people just read the headline and think, oh, Bernie wants to raise my taxes. Fuck Bernie. So they know what they're doing, and Bernie knows what they're doing, and I think he's become savvy enough to call it out. Of course, Bernie Sanders was not in the same league as Joe Biden. While Joe Biden was teaming up with segregationists to do segregation, Bernie Sanders was leading the fight to desegregate college campuses. So, I mean, how dare you even try to portray Bernie Sanders in that same light? How despicable. But, I mean, it's it's not surprising. This is the Washington Post, and as you're going to see here, Bernie Sanders did not hesitate to take even more shots at them, Um, and it was amazing. So, what we're going to see now is Bernie Sanders will explain what we can expect if he is the president. Because we have this idea of the legislative process. You know, somebody will propose a policy and then it'll be debated between Republicans and Democrats and then there'll ultimately be a watered-down version of said policy. But what Bernie Sanders is going to do here is explain, look, my presidency is not going to be a normal presidency. We're not going to continue to do politics as usual. I'm going to make the case that we are not executing my agenda as president. We're executing the agenda of the American people. And he has a very specific plan to name and shame people who actually don't want to get on board with policies like Medicare for All. And I loved everything he said here because he alluded to it in the past, but he was very specific here about what that would look like in practice. 
President Obama had to make concessions on the ACA. Would you be willing to make concessions as president on Medicare for All? Well, I, I think one of the points that I want to make is, is Bernie Sanders' presidency would be a different type of presidency. In other words, I hold the radical vision that maybe just maybe a president and a Congress should do what the American people want them to do. I know that's a radical idea. It's, not ra- I th- no, no, it's no. in reality. Mitch, oh, but, Leader McConnell doesn't seem right, let to me pay talk a political about price. Let me talk right? about, he doesn't seem to pay a political right, price let, for not taking up the House Democrats' right, bills. Let me talk about reality, all right? And again, I, you know, what we are trying to do is something a bit different than other presidents. That's my history politically. And what I believe is that right now you have a Congress that is heavily done, especially the Republican Party. You tell me, maybe the Washington Post might want to do a poll on this, and that is to ask the American people whether they think we should give huge tax breaks to billionaires, greatly expand military spending, and then cut back on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and education. Now, if you did that poll, how many, what percentage of the American people would think that's a good idea? But that's exactly what Mitch McConnell believes. All right, way out of touch with the people of Kentucky, with the people of America. What we need is presidential leadership that goes to Kentucky, by the way, a very poor state, and says that, stand up and tell your senators that health care is a human right, that you will save money by moving to a Medicare program. Right now, in my campaign for president, the thing I'm most proud of is that we have over one million volunteers. The reason I believe we're going to win the Democratic nomination and defeat Trump is because of our grassroots movement. And as president, what I will do is expand that movement and create a process where people all over this country become engaged in the political process, working class people, young people in a way that we have never seen before, and put pressure on Republicans that I will do everything I can to make sure, by the way, that the Republicans do not continue to control the Senate, but put pressure on Republicans and Democrats to move this country forward in a way that reflects the needs of the working class in this country. What does that mean? It means raising the minimum wage to a living wage. It means rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure and creating many millions of decent paying jobs. It means expanding the trade union movement, making it easier for workers to join unions. It means demanding that the wealthiest people in this country start paying their fair share of taxes. Now, I know we're in Jeff Bezos' building, but Amazon last year made over $10 billion of profit. What did they pay in taxes? Not a nickel in federal income taxes. Does anyone think that that is vaguely sane? Okay, first of all, I loved that jab that he took at Jeff Bezos there at the end. Second of all, this right here tells you everything you need to know about the entirety of the Democratic Party primary in 2020. There's one candidate who's truly fighting for you and actually has a plan to get your agenda implemented legislatively. It's Bernie Sanders. He's saying here, I am not fighting from my agenda. My agenda is what the American people want. He says what we need is presidential leadership that goes to Kentucky, Mitch McConnell's state, a very poor state, and says, stand up and tell your senators that health care is a human right. He'd put pressure on Republicans and Democrats to move this country forward in a way that reflects the needs of the working class in this country. Understand what he's saying and why this is so unprecedented. He's saying, I am gearing up 
to go to war with the special interests, with Republicans, with members of my own party if I'm president, because I know that I will be opposed by all types of forces if I'm elected. So what we're going to do is fight tooth and nail, and we know that we're going to have to do this in order to get what we want implemented. I'll campaign in Kentucky if Mitch McConnell is still the Senate Majority Leader. I will go to the districts of Congress members who are in the Democratic Party and tell their constituents why they're siding with the health insurance industry as opposed to them. This is what you have to do. You play politics and you fucking crack skulls. Bernie Sanders is the only person who's explicitly saying, I will not be doing politics as usual. And no, this isn't, you know, the Obama promise of hope and change. We're going to change the way we do politics. He's saying, yes, we're going to change the way we do politics, but here's my plan. This is specifically what I will do to make sure that your agenda is implemented. It's amazing to see somebody say this. I mean, how could you not vote for them? If you plug your ears and ignore Bernie Sanders, then you have no reason to complain because you have a candidate who's willing to do your bidding unequivocally, uncompromisingly. Do you expect any other presidential candidate to go to the home state of a different lawmaker and campaign against them in such a brazen way? I mean, who would do that? He knows to be attacked by the mainstream media. He knows that this would invite, you know, an intraparty warfare, perhaps. Democrats would attack him. The DNC would attack him. They would try to primary him in 2024, but he doesn't care because he knows that there's no other way that you get something like Medicare for All. You don't have a choice. If you genuinely believe that we should have Medicare for All and you know that that's what the American people want, you have no choice. If you're not willing to do this, you're not going to get Medicare for all. So all these other candidates like Elizabeth Warren, she could say, look, I, you know, I support abolishing private insurance, but at the end of the day, who do you want battling for you? Elizabeth Warren, who oftentimes kowtows to the establishment, or Bernie Sanders, who says, I don't give a fuck what they have to say about me. This is such... A fascinating interview. Bernie Sanders truly is one of a kind. Like, I would be surprised if we see another politician like him who's this strategically savvy in our lifetimes. Now, moving on, Bernie Sanders has been accused of being too consistent, and that's apparently a negative. He uh, has the same exact message as he did in 2016. But what's interesting is that there are so many swaggerjacking centrists who are copying his message. They're plagiarizing him. But yet, He's being accused of being a one-trick pony. So he was asked how he distinguishes himself in a primary where there's a lot of fake Bernie Sanders who are running to be Bernie Sanders light. And um, this is his response, which I thought was just great. And there's a real choice, as you outlined today, between Vice President Biden's view of the world and your view of the world. But you have a crowded lane this time. A lot of people echoing your views, stuff you talked about in 2016. How do you persuade voters that they should side with you? It's crowded this time around. I think I would ask people to look at the record. You're beyond right. the record. Beyond well, no, 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 That's, no. I think it is fair to look at the record. I mean, anybody can come up with any position today. They can do a poll. Say, oh, boy, I better support Medicare for all. It's popular among Democrats. You think some Democrats have I'm not, the look, 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 I'm not. Well. You can make that determination. All that I'm saying is find out, you know, you talked about other people saying what I'm saying. Four years ago, it was not so easy because I got condemned by the Washington Post and everybody else about talking about raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. Talk about Medicare for all single payer system. 
talking about making public colleges and universities tuition-free and dealing with student debt, talked about a trillion-dollar investment to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure, talked about criminal justice reform and comprehensive immigration reform. I was there. I did it. Is when being it wasn't, first enough this time? No, it's not enough. But it should tell the average voter that I am prepared to lead in a different type of way, that I am prepared to take on the political establishment, to take on the corporate establishment, and stand up for the working class of this country. One, he took another jab at the Washington Post, which I loved, and two, he made a phenomenal point. I mean, you're running to be president because you believe that you have leadership qualities that are necessary for that position. So he says, look, I led on these issues. It was politically not expedient for me to be talking about Medicare for all, or, you know, it, it was promoted this idea that you shouldn't talk about these policy ideas that are too progressive or too radical. But he said, I just ran on what I thought was, you know, the right policies. I led the charge. And now everyone else is following behind me. Nobody talked about Medicare for all. Even people who are deemed progressive, Elizabeth Warren, she didn't talk about Medicare for all until I talked about Medicare for all. Why? Because I'm a leader. They're following me. I'm the one leading on these issues. So do you want diet Bernie Sanders or do you want the real deal? And that's exactly the point he needs to hammer home. He was the leader while everyone else was too afraid playing politics to talk about these issues that we all have been wanting for decades. I mean, single-payer healthcare is not some new idea. This is what liberals have been wanting, left-wing and progressive people. They've been wanting this for decades. I've always wanted single-payer. So the fact that Bernie is just the only politician who capitalized on this policy, you know, that shows not only that he's politically savvy, but he's also brave because, you know, strategists in D.C. would say, you know, you just can't take a stance on an issue until it polls at above 50%. And once it reaches 51%, you can endorse it. But, you know, if it's below 50%, stay away from that policy. Bernie isn't a focus group driven, poll minded politician. He speaks authentically from the heart. And that's why people like him, because when he says, I'm going to fight for Medicare for all, we can believe him. Because there's no conflict of interest that suggests he's going to, you know, uh, not do what he's saying he's going to do when he gets elected. Because the people who helped get him in power are not the industries who would benefit by killing off a plan like Medicare for All. So again, I will link you to the full interview. It's absolutely phenomenal. I would encourage you to watch the entire thing. Bernie was really at his best here. He was snappy. He was charming. I loved it. Um, we need to share this interview because we need people to see Bernie Sanders, you know, uh, in his best uh, in his best light, right? He, he's phenomenal here. And he explains very clearly how he's going to be fighting for people if he's elected. And people need to see this because they need to see that there's one person in this race who's the real deal. It's Bernie Sanders. And he makes that crystal clear, I think, in this interview. So recently on the program, we talked about how Bernie Sanders finally called out Joe Biden because Joe Biden is quite literally shilling for the health insurance industry. I mean, he takes donations from them. He takes donations from the pharmaceutical industry. So Bernie Sanders finally realized that what he needs to do is take the gloves off once and for all and attack Joe Biden head on. And I applauded Bernie for that, but I said he also needs to be more fierce and more direct, like name drop Joe Biden more frequently, because we need to know, or we need to let the American people know more specifically, that this man is not fighting for them. He is a shill, and he's only fighting for his donors. 
Um, I don't think Bernie Sanders is listening, but certainly he did something that um, I can applaud that is along what I hoped I would see from him. So he created this poll, or it, really it's a quiz, and it says Joe Biden is attacking Medicare for all with lies straight out of the playbook of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and the health insurance industry. Can you guess who said it? Um, so I haven't taken a look at this. So you're going to see my genuine reaction to this quiz because I'm going to take the quiz um, and see if I could pass it. But this is exactly what you need to do because this is wholesome trolling. You're trolling Joe Biden by getting people to take a quiz that will see if they can distinguish between a quote from Joe Biden, Mitch McConnell, or Donald Trump. Because it really shows you that there's really not that big of a difference between the health insurance industry, Republicans, uh, and Joe Biden, which matters in a Democratic Party primary. So let's go ahead and take the quiz. Um, and I'll just say I should probably do relatively good at this quiz because, you know, I follow politics for a living. But Joe Biden has said things that are indistinguishable from the health industry, from Republicans. So um, if Bernie constructed this in a good way, then I will get some of these wrong. So the first one, quote, Medicare goes away as you know it. All the Medicare you have is gone. See, um... I believe that Joe Biden just said something like that, but that last sentence there, um, it's kind of, it's kind of iffy to me because it sounds like something that Donald Trump would say. All the Medicare you have is gone, bigly. So um, that's tough. It's between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, but I'm gonna say Joe Biden here. Correct. Fact, Medicare for All will expand Medicare to cover everyone and provide the services seniors need the most, including dental care, hearing aids, routine vision exams, podiatry, and more. So not only are you um, getting the message across that what Joe Biden is saying is comparable to what health industry executives are saying and Donald Trump is saying, but he's also educating people. Bernie, this is this is brilliant. Ah, love it. Okay, so let's go to the next question. Quote, Medicare for all would really be Medicare for none. Today's Medicare would be forced to die. So I actually, I feel like I covered this quote on my show before, but um, Medicare for none. See, this is tough. And I feel like maybe he... Um, it's going to have a lot of Joe Bidens in here since he's trying to drive home the point that Joe Biden sounds a lot like these health industry executives and Republicans, but it's tough. Medicare for all would really be Medicare for none. Today's health care would be forced to die. You know, I'm going to say that this is something that the United Healthcare CEO David Wickman said. No idea if this is correct. Incorrect. That was Donald Trump. Okay. Um, fact, Medicare for all will expand... Medicare to cover everyone and vastly improve it by covering dental, hearing, and vision, as well as all other necessary services. Okay, so that was Donald Trump. Uh, I've got one right and one wrong. Let's continue here. Quote, 180 million Americans would lose private insurance that many of them negotiated for at work. Um, I'm pretty sure Joe Biden said something exactly like this just a couple of weeks ago. It may not be a direct quote, but he basically said this. So I'm going to say Joe Biden. Incorrect. It was Mitch McConnell. Okay. Uh, Medicare for all would guarantee health care for all and allow Americans to negotiate for higher wages instead of better health benefits. All right. Well played, Bernie. Um, quote, how many of you out there 
have had someone you've lost to cancer or cancer yourself. No time. We cannot have a hiatus of six months, a year, two, three to get something done. So Joe Biden definitely said something like this at the uh, Democratic Party debate. So I'm going to say Joe Biden. Correct. That was Joe Biden. In fact, under Medicare for all over a 40 over a four year period, we will transition to a system in which Medicare is expanded to cover everyone and end the horror of millions of people going into financial distress simply because they need care for serious conditions. Okay, next question. How many of you like your employer based health care? Do you think it was adequate? Now, if I come along and say, you're finished, you can't have it anymore, well, that's what Medicare for All does. You cannot have it, period, number one. There's a hiatus in between, by the way, of how long it's going to take. So just by process of elimination, we haven't had um, any quotes from David Wickman yet, so I'm going to select him, but I honestly have no idea because it could be anyone here. It was Joe Biden. Okay, okay. Fact, Medicare for All will free Americans from the greed of health insurance companies that prioritize profits over people's lives. There will be no hiatus or lapse in coverage. Over a four-year period, every American will transition off their current health insurance to Medicare for All. Now, I should say, four years is too long. I really hope that Bernie Sanders' bill reaches parity with Pramila Jayapal's. She has a two-year rollout. But what Bernie Sanders did was he allowed Kirsten Gillibrand to write that portion of the rollout. So maybe he let her write that and make it a little bit more shittier just so she'd support it. But I think Bernie, if he were elected, would rewrite it so it matches Pramila Jayapal's. Because there's no reason to wait that long and give Republicans that much time where there's uncertainty about what Medicare for All would look like, you know, and potentially get public opinion to go down. Um, okay, so there's one more question. I really want to try to get this one correct. Quote, I happen to be a proponent of a single-payer universal health care plan. I see no reason why the United States of America, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, is spending 14% of its GNP cannot provide basic health insurance to everybody. Um, okay, this is this one is a little bit tricky because I happen to be a proponent of single-payer health care. But then they kind of switch it towards the end to health insurance. Um... Oh, and they added Barack Obama into the mix. Um, I'm going to say Barack Obama just because that is a new one here. Correct. That was Barack Obama. So we got a little bit of a, a switcheroo at the end there. You know, he says all these things that Joe Biden said that sounds pretty Republican-y. And then at the end, he had Obama say he supports single payer. Now, we all know that that is horseshit because um, Obama... <laughs> He didn't even push for a public option, but I see what Bernie's trying to do here. This is brilliant, by the way. This is absolutely brilliant, by the way. One other thing that I want him to do is, like, when Elizabeth Warren, she came out with a student loan debt cancellation plan, she put up a calculator so you can put your income in, and it will tell you about how much of your student debt would be canceled. He should do the same, but obviously, since he's canceling 100% of student loan debt, Every single time, the result would be zero. Uh, zero dollars would be uh, remaining because I think that would be great. It's not an attack on Elizabeth Warren. It's just a fact. Um, okay, so it says continue. I'm assuming this is going to be about fundraising. It's going to ask for money because that's what you've got to do. Um, yeah, so before you go, if you agree it's time that the United States guarantee health care a right for every man, woman, and child in this country, sign Bernie Sanders' petition, tell Congress to pass a Medicare for all single-payer health system. So for signing a petition, sure, I'll sign it. 
that email doesn't look valid. Oh, I didn't add the .com. Submit. Okay, and then we go to the uh, donation page. Um, I am enrolled in monthly donations, so I am not going to contribute here. But um, yeah, that was great. Bernie is... Um, this was a brilliant move here. He is trolling Joe Biden in not a hostile way, in a very wholesome way, and I absolutely love it. Great move by Bernie. Keep it up. I want to see more of this, and I want to see you uh, rip Joe Biden a new one because it is warranted for the way that he's been, you know, attacking Medicare for all viciously as of late. When it comes to migrants in detention facilities at the border, there's been so much discussion in politics about whether or not it's appropriate to call them concentration camps or even accurate to say that they're comparable to concentration camps. But as we have this conversation, as mainstream media continues to dwell on this, as Republicans hammer away at how insensitive it is for someone like AOC to call them that, we're missing a broader issue. We're missing what's actually happening in these facilities, regardless of what you want to call them. Now, when you look at these migrant detention facilities slash concentration camps, I don't know how you can dispute the fact that these are, in fact, concentration camps. And me personally, that's what I'm going to call them because I call it like I see it. That's what it looks like. What we're going to do, though, is I'm going to show you footage from these facilities and allow you to judge for yourself. Because what you're going to see here is actual human suffering that's going on. People who are begging and pleading for individuals that bring their cell phones into the facilities to get the word out about the conditions. And it's absolutely gut-wrenching, it's heartbreaking, and when you see this, if you actually believe that all human beings are equal and you have human compassion and just basic empathy, then something will go off in you as you watch this. You're going to feel for these people. So the first video I'm going to show you is from Representative uh, McGovern, who took a video of, I want to say, a couple dozen migrants in a relatively small room, and this is their reaction to him filming them. Help us. Quantos dias estavas aqui? 40 days? We have 40 days here. We haven't taken a shower for 40 days. Huh? We haven't taken a shower for 40 days? We haven't taken a shower for 40 days. We came here to your beach. It worked in the United States. And what about, what about food? Are you, are you eating? Are, they, are you being fed? Food? They got comida. Oh, come on. Eh, la luz por la noche, la luz por la noche, la luz está prendida por la noche. Ah, so you've been here for over 40 days, no showers, no meals. Señor, le, 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 le tienen la luz prendida por la noche, no pueden dormir bien. So they're saying that the lights are kept on all night long. That was really, really difficult to watch. You see the tears in their eyes. You see just, you see people genuinely suffering. And 
you know, it's hard to really grasp that this is happening in our country. Our tax dollars are funding that suffering that we're seeing. And they talked about how they haven't showered in 40 days. Can you imagine how uncomfortable that would be? How gross you would feel? And then when it comes to how often they're being fed, it was difficult to really grasp what they were saying. But one guy, he put up his finger, which kind of signaled, you know, maybe they're not eating very often, maybe once per day. So they're not showering. They are presumably not eating very frequently. They're having to sleep with the lights on. This is absolutely morally reprehensible. They're stripping away the dignity that human beings should always have. But I mean, that's the point. What they're doing here is they're trying to send a message to other people who may think about crossing the border. If you come here into our country, this is not a place that will be welcoming to you. This is what you're going to have to deal with. So by, you know, not allowing them to shower, feeding them infrequently, putting them in these small confined areas with a lot of people that are obviously overcrowded, that's the point. The point is to strip away their human dignity. You know, they're cruel because they want other people to not want to come into the country. And the Trump administration isn't necessarily trying to hide this type of footage. In fact, they released footage of Mike Pence going into one of these facilities and touring the facility. And you see people in cages basically with the same response. And I'm going to play that video clip for you, but look at Mike Pence's face because you will see just this blank stare on his face, completely apathetic, not caring at all. I mean, you see them, they're trying to send a message, you know, we haven't eaten, they're doing, you know, the 4-0, and there's nothing, just complete and utter lack of empathy entirely. It's baffling. Take a look. How can you go into a facility, see all of those people crammed into a confined area? I mean, watching that, I've, I felt claustrophobic myself. How can you go into that facility, though, and just not even acknowledge their existence? It's like he walked into a fucking zoo and was checking out an exhibit. That's the response. But in fact, it's even worse than that, because if you walked into a zoo, you know, there would be some type of human emotion that would be expressed on a normal human being's face. But we got nothing there from Mike Pence. We got a seemingly sociopathic response from him. He didn't care at all that there were all these people in cages 
behind this fence and obviously too many people for one area and towards the end there you know it seemed like they were lying down trying to demonstrate that one if they're going to sleep it's going to be on concrete but two even if they wanted to sleep on the concrete they can't really do that because there's not enough room for all of them because there's so many people confined to a singular area now let me remind you Trump's administration released this video. They want people to see it. They want the word to get out about these conditions. Now, they're not overtly saying, you know, these are the horrible conditions. In fact, they would maintain that the conditions are lovely. In fact, Mike Pence said, you know, um, I talked to somebody and she told me how wonderful it is and how her children are being taken care of and whatnot. So they're going to say that. They're going to try to maintain that facade. But Mike Pence knows exactly what he's trying to do. This information was deliberately released by Donald Trump's administration because they want us to see it. They want people who may or may not cross the border to see it. They want that to dissuade them. And they also want their supporters to see, look, this is what we're doing. All these people that would be trying to integrate into your society, your white society, they're now locked behind cages. Look at what we're doing. So this is propaganda and it accomplishes numerous things for the Trump administration. Numerous things. See, when you and I see it, we feel disgusted. We feel nauseous by looking at the way that our government is treating other human beings. But when a Trump supporter who is highly xenophobic sees this, he or she applauds it and thinks my government is doing something. Trump knows this. Mike Pence knows this. And they also hope that other immigrants get the message too. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about AOC's visit to the border. And she talked about how poorly women and children were treated. One of the migrants asked for water. They told her to drink out of a toilet. So I'm going to play a clip of AOC's testimony before Congress, because that really, what you're going to see here is emotion from someone who's normal. Like if you go into these facilities and you try to process what's happening, this should be the response. You should be appalled. You should be disgusted. So what you're going to see is AOC cry as she describes this you're also going to hear from Rashida Tlaib towards the end of the clip but try to think about her reaction which is a normal human reaction and juxtapose that with the reaction of Mike Pence in your mind as you watch this and what was worst about this Mr. Chairman was the fact that there were American flags hanging all over these facilities that children were being separated from their parents in front of an American flag that women were being called these names under an American flag. Mr. Chairman, it needs to be noted into record. I spoke to CPB agents, even though they told us not to speak to them too. Remember that? And I said, what do you think we need to do because you guys are overwhelmed? They said, one of them, stop sending money, it's not working. Another one said, I wasn't trained for this. I am not a social worker. I am a medical, not a medical care worker. He actually said, I want to be at the border. That's what I was trained to be at. The separate, the one other one, the last one, Mr. Chairman, the separation policy isn't working, he said. So what you saw there was a genuine, normal reaction to have to other human beings suffering. We're no different than the migrants that are in those cages. We can feel claustrophobic. We can feel 
hunger. We can feel sad. And so AOC is seeing herself in them as any human being would. But when you contrast that with Mike Pence's response, it was cold and he clearly had no remorse. Now, one last video I want to show you is from a lawyer who met with um, child detainees and she gives us a little bit more insight into the conditions. Again, you're seeing somebody who was affected in, I think, a normal way react to horrible conditions. Many had not brushed their teeth for days. They were wearing the same clothes they had on when they crossed the border. Clothes that were covered in nasal mucus, vomit, breast milk, urine. Multiple children had a strong stench emanating from them because they had not showered in days. At Clint, I met a six-year-old boy who I will never forget. He was tiny and he hardly spoke. When I asked him if he was at Clint with anyone, he began to sob nearly inconsolably for an hour, nearly an hour. This is happening in the United States of America. But please, whatever you do, don't call them concentration camps. So I'll let you decide now. You saw the footage. You saw the testimony from people who toured these facilities who couldn't show us everything because they couldn't bring their cell phones, even though some of them snuck, you know, their phones in and got some photographs. But you saw it for yourself. How are these not concentration camps? How is it inaccurate to call them concentration camps? How? We know what these are. These are concentration camps. And by calling them what they are, we're getting people to really take a second look at the practices that are going on in these facilities. We're getting people to think, wait a minute, we're calling them concentration camps, so maybe I should see for myself what the conditions are like so I can be the judge. So calling them concentration camps isn't just effective politically, but it's accurate. You saw them. These people are suffering in there. And they're suffering at the hands of our government, and we're the ones who are paying for that. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit, because we covered the human angle. But I want to talk about the capitalist angle. Because even if you see that suffering, and could think, who's benefiting from this, right? Well, the capitalist system absolutely finds a way to extract good from even horrific situations, and turns a profit out of it. Because these concentration camps oftentimes are privately run. And as Steph Knight of Axios explains, as of November 2017, 71% of detained immigrants were being held in private detention facilities, according to government data obtained by the National Immigrant Justice Center. Since Trump became president, ICE has awarded more than $480 million in federal funds to GEO Group and more than $330 million to CoreCivic, according to USA Spending. It's a similar situation to the late 1980s and early 1990s when all levels of government began struggling to handle the surge in prison populations and turned to private prison companies to help. Brennan Center for Justice Program Director Inamai Chetiar told Axios, the government is rapidly increasing immigration detention and 
outsourcing it to the private sector. Between the lines, these privately run detention centers often hire fewer staff members, require less training of them, or don't implement programming for detainees. Randy Capps, director of research for U.S. programs at the Migration Policy Institute, told Axios, some have even been sued for imposing forced labor on immigrants. When you have kind of weak standards and you have a for-profit motive, you wind up with understaffing and you wind up with lack of services and activities, Cap said. That's where you get to health problems and you probably have mental health problems too. So we have a system that is carrying out large-scale human suffering. We are detaining human beings and keeping them in cages. And we also live in a system that incentivizes the profitization of everything. Everything is commodified. So these private facilities that are overseeing detainees, they have an incentive to keep costs low, which means you squeeze more migrants into smaller facilities, you have left staff, and it's just a recipe for disaster. This is what capitalism does. Now, even if you eliminate capitalism, that doesn't mean that xenophobia would be eliminated as well. But certainly, you can see how, here how, you know, these things are related and capitalism exacerbates the issue that we're all seeing. So overall, I just want you to see this, to see the footage, because if you see this and you have no response, if your reaction is just ambivalence, then I need you to question how you see other human beings. Because if you don't get some type of visceral response to seeing that, if you don't think, man, this is difficult to watch, even if you're against immigration, even if you're a Trump supporter, if you don't have the switch in your head go off and you don't feel something for these people, you need to reevaluate yourself and reevaluate your priorities because you have bought in to this idea that other human beings can be less than you and inferior to you. And that's incorrect and it's fundamentally against what we should be as human beings who are the same as these migrants. Just as we may feel claustrophobic in those conditions, they would feel that way as well. Just as we'd feel disgusting if we couldn't shower, they feel that way as well. Because they're human beings. And we should treat them as human beings. So let's talk about Saikot Chakrabadi. He is originally from the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. He then went on to be one of the four original co-founders of Justice Democrats, along with Kyle Kalinske and Jen Uger. And I'm forgetting who the fourth person is, but nonetheless, he was a part of that original group. He then went on to become AOC's chief of staff. And now the establishment has kind of targeted him because he is just as outspoken in condemning the Democratic Party and all of their failures and weaknesses. So on Twitter, he oftentimes calls out Democrats who are corporatists. He calls out Democratic Party leadership, Nancy Pelosi, and he's relentless. He's doing what somebody who is on the left should be doing. And let's just take a moment to think about this. Like, do you think that people who are progressive, who are democratic socialists, such as myself, do you think we want to spend any time criticizing the Democratic Party when the Republican Party is a proto-fascist party and they are as extreme, perhaps, as they've ever been? I mean, do you think we enjoy wasting time on this? No, of course we want to move on to the Republican Party. But the Democratic Party has become so bad, so weak, 
They become Trump and Republican Party enablers, and we shouldn't have to call them out. We shouldn't have to hold their hands and make them oppose Donald Trump in a meaningful way. But that's the reality of the situation. That's the world that we're living in. We are not in a world where we have a competent opposition party that keeps this fascist party in check, the Republicans. So what do we have to do? We have to hold them accountable so they hold Republicans accountable as well. Again, I would rather dedicate all of my time into attacking Republicans, but Democrats have power and they're the closest to us ideologically, even if there's a lot of distance there. So what we have to do is get them to use their power to keep Republicans in check. So when Sycott calls out Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party's corporatism, he's doing a public service because now he's in a position that is relatively influential. He is the chief of staff for one of the most popular politicians in America. Certainly, perhaps one with the most name recognition out of everyone, AOC. So he's calling them out because he wants them to do better, not because he's trying to create this false equivalence and that Democrats are bad, you know, and Republicans are good. Of course not. But what you're going to see here is how the Democratic Party establishment responds to his criticism. And predictably, they don't take it very well. But before we get to their response, let's get to what Sycott is saying, because I don't think these criticisms are even that controversial. So he tweeted out, the greatest threat to mankind is the cowardice of the Democratic Party. This is a quote from a Ryan Grimm article that he shared. He says, if Democratic leaders cannot lead fearlessly in a time like this, we may not get another chance. Our civilization is at stake. All these articles want to claim what a legislative mastermind Pelosi is, but I'm seeing way more strategic smarts from freshman members like AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. Pelosi is just mad that she got outmaneuvered again by Republicans. Pelosi claims we can't focus on impeachment because it's a distraction from kitchen table issues, but I'd challenge you to find voters that can name a single thing House Democrats have done for their kitchen table this year. What is this legislative mastermind doing? We are in a time that calls for leaders that lead. Leaders like AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. Voters want representatives who will fight even if they lose. The fact that House Democratic leadership doesn't see this is incredibly troubling. So he's approaching this from the position that, hey, I need you to do your job. I need you to do better because you are the only governmental force that actually has the power and authority to check Republican Party tyranny. Do your fucking job. Do your job. But Nancy Pelosi isn't doing her job. Like, we shouldn't have to force Nancy Pelosi to stand up to Donald Trump. She should see that this party is becoming increasingly fascist and there should be a switch that goes off in her head where she just knows, okay, I need to defeat him and stop their harmful legislative agenda. But that's not happening. That's not happening. So that's why people like Sycott, people like myself, have to stand up and say, Democrats, where are you? We need you to fight. And that's what he's doing. The point is that he's calling out Nancy Pelosi by name because she's failing. But here's what they're really pissed about. This is a tweet that he put out recently after Nancy Pelosi and 90 Democrats 
caved to Mitch McConnell. Didn't realize this needed to be said, but you can be someone who does not personally harbor ill will towards a race, but through your actions still enable a racist system. And a lot of new Democrats and blue dogs did that today. This is in reference to my comparing blue dogs and new Democrats to 1940s Southern Democrats. Southern Democrats enabled a racist system too. I have no idea how personally racist they all are, and we're seeing the same dynamic play out now. Now, somebody then responded to him and said, well, does it make sense to say that a congresswoman like Sharice Davids, who is a Native American, does it make sense to say that someone like her is enabling a racist system when obviously she personally wouldn't be benefiting from that at all? And this is what he said in response. I think the point still stands. I don't think people have to be personally racist to enable a racist system. And the same could even be said of the Southern Democrats. I don't believe Sharice is a racist person, but her votes are showing her to enable a racist system. And he says this because she voted for the bill that funds Donald Trump's border migrant detention, concentration camps, uh, with absolutely no checks, um, no uh, care, no uh, accountability whatsoever. She voted for that. So he's calling her out because she did something that is harmful, that enables fascism. He called that out. Democrats absolutely hated that. And here's what they said in response. Who is this guy and why is he explicitly singling out a Native American woman of color? Her name is Congresswoman Davids, not Sharice. She is a phenomenal new member who flipped a red seed blue. Keep her name out of your mouth. So as you can see, um, how dare you respond to a question about Sharice Davids? How dare you? You see, because the Democratic Party, they really need us to believe that they are fantastic on social justice and racial issues because that's literally all that they have to prove to their left-wing base that they aren't as bad as Republicans. I mean, if you take away this idea that Democrats are good on gender, race, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity... Uh, what's left? The equivalence between then, them and Republicans would vanish. So they have to protect this idea that they're absolutely anti-racist and anyone who says otherwise is in the wrong. And now, since he said that, since he challenged that sacred idea, they are coming after him. And they're coming after him really, really hard. In fact, members of the Democratic Party establishment want him fired and are directly calling for that. Now, as Mike Lillis and Scott Wong of The Hill write, in recent weeks, Saikot Chakrabadi has tweeted messages suggesting Pelosi is an ineffective legislator that a Native American lawmaker voted to, quote, enable a racist system and that moderate Democrats are modern-day segregationists because they backed a Senate border aid bill. It's all put additional pressure on Ocasio-Cortez, a New York Democrat who has taken Congress by storm. That's just a terrible statement to make. That's a terrible statement to make. Representative Gregory Meeks, a Congressional Black Caucus member, said of Chakrabadi's segregationist tweets, somebody's got to be held accountable. If my staff did something that was not right, then I have to handle my staff. The question is, do you think it's appropriate for your staff to say something like that? Added Meeks, who in recent days has threatened to back a primary challenger against Ocasio-Cortez. Chakrabadi's outspoken style combined with his history of fighting to topple in 
incumbent Democrats deemed too conservative to bear the party brand has made him a target of fierce new scrutiny while raising questions about his longevity on Capitol Hill. Do I think AOC's chief of staff needs to be fired? Of course I do, said a moderate Democratic lawmaker. Who is in charge in that office? Is she unable to fire him for his racist comments? Another Democratic lawmaker added, my chief would have the honor to resign if he tweeted those things. Chakrabadi is a snot-nosed punk who doesn't have a clue about the liberal battles the grizzled 79-year-old speaker has led over the years. Former Representative Rahm Emanuel, who served under Pelosi as head of the House Democratic Caucus and campaign arm, said in an interview with the New York Times. Now, there were more quotes that I didn't even touch on from uh, Democratic aides, representatives, and strategists who were saying, you know, it's really odd that he hasn't been reprimanded for his racist comments, even though he was calling out racism. He's being racist because he was talking about a woman of color, even though he's a man of color, but he's being racist. And it's really odd that AOC hasn't done anything. Um, maybe she should fire him. Maybe we should get her kicked out of Congress if she doesn't rein in her attack dog. I mean, this is what the Democratic Party does. I said this once, I'll say it again. They are resisting progressives. They're resisting the left more strongly than they resist Republicans. Do you ever see members of the Democratic Party establishment go this hard against Republicans? I mean, they'll take shots at Republicans, sure. They'll talk about how much of a threat Donald Trump is, but they continue to enable him. They vote for his military budgets. They vote to fund his concentration camps while not having any type of stipulation for accountability or any extra resources to make the migrants actually not feel uh, horrible, like they're suffering. I mean, this is what they do. So when Sycott called out them and the way that they enabled, you know, the racist system that we have in place currently, the racist status quo, that was a bridge too far. Because when you go after the Democratic Party when it comes to issues related to race and any social or racial justice issues, then you're attacking their legitimacy directly because that's all they got. Again, they're conservative economically. So if people start to lose faith in their ability to stand up on behalf of people when it comes to racial and social justice, they're toast. I mean, they're already pretty much incompetent and incapable of running successful campaigns against Republicans, but I mean, they're toast if they lose that. That's why they're responding so forcefully to Shycott here. But he needs to keep it up, because if they don't want to be criticized, there's a very easy solution that can get people like Shycott, people like myself, off of their backs. They can fucking do better. It's that simple. Stand up to Republicans and start resisting them even half as much as you do progressives. That's a start. Hi. Before you skip this ad, take a moment to hear me out. But first, let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you find blue-haired left-wingers on college campuses who oftentimes cry about social justice as insufferable as I do? Do you believe that them using their free speech rights to speak out against speech that they deem harmful or hateful is actually an attack on free speech itself? And do you believe that trickle-down economics isn't complete and utter horseshit? No? Well, it looks like you're missing out on a lucrative opportunity, my friend. Now, I know what you're thinking. SJWs, right-wing economics, how are these two things related? Well, allow me to break it down for you. 
You see, I'm a right-wing YouTuber myself named Rave Dubin, and I used to be progressive. But I realized that being a left-wing political commentator wasn't necessarily yielding the financial payoff that I had hoped for or thought that I deserved. So I did what any business-minded individual in my predicament would do. I decided to team up with coke-funded right-wing organizations like Learn Liberty or PragerU in order to get paid to peddle propaganda and spread harmful misinformation in order to do two very important things. One, boost my public profile, and two, make fuckloads of sweet, sweet cash. Now, since PragerU is about educating people, we do have a U in our name after all, I'm going to teach you how to do what I do so you too can turn a profit. And really, there's a plethora of ways that you can go about doing this. Me personally, see, I have a show where I bring on white supremacists and even proto-fascists, and I do all of this under the guise of exploring the marketplace of ideas. And when I'm inevitably then called out by the left for doing this and irresponsibly platforming people who are pretty much Nazis, that's when the real money starts rolling in because then what I do is play the victim and construct a narrative that it's actually the left's goal to censor me. I build my case against the big bad SJW boogeyman and denounce their criticism as just more outrage from the left. And this is what a lot of right-wingers like myself do on YouTube because as I simultaneously build the case as to why I'm really the one who's the victim here, I get all of my right-wing viewers to rally around me and support me and send me money and buy my merchandise or brain pills or whatever bullshit I'm trying to hawk at that moment. You see, it may not necessarily seem like SJWs are the biggest threat to the country or even free speech, but that doesn't matter. The SJW narrative is crucial to our cause, and when I say cause, I mean goal of making money, and it would behoove you to learn how to execute this strategy yourself if you'd also like to profit. So here's what you're going to want to do. You're going going to want to identify a fairly straightforward example of a left-winger behaving badly and extrapolate from that. Meaning, show your friends or viewers how unreasonable and authoritarian students on college campuses have become and tie their outrage to broader cultural issues. Explain how this is just a microcosm of a bigger issue that's plaguing society in general. Their hypersensitivity to any and everything that they deem unjust or racist or misogynistic is actually putting all of us on a path directly towards full-blown authoritarianism, where suddenly we're all going to be silenced for daring to speak up about things that our peers may or may not deem offensive. Be sure to also catastrophize and throw out extreme hypothetical questions like, will free speech be banned in order to accommodate hypersensitive snowflakes that don't want their feelings hurt? I know, it sounds fucking dumb, but just roll with it because people will believe it. Trust me, I've been doing this for years now. Now, as you're building the case against left-wing authoritarians, make sure you avoid talking about the relative social authoritarians that we have on our side. Because yes, it's true, we do technically have snowflakes on the right as well, who do exist and frequently get triggered by desecration of the American flag, kneeling during the national anthem, being openly blasphemous towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or criticizing Daddy Trump. Now, you don't have to bring these things up to appear fair or neutral, because remember, we're trying to convince them that the left, and only the left is the problem. Not necessarily because it's true, but because it's just our initial sales pitch. 
You see, once we hook people with our anti-SJW opener, we then expose them to more complex ideas related to SJWs and perhaps bring up how feminism is cancer and just so happens to be tied to SJW movements on college campuses or how crazy it is that transgender people have become the pronoun police and they definitely want to lock you or me in jail if we happen to misgender them. Now for this, I refer to my friend Jordan Peterson whenever this issue comes up because he is extremely knowledgeable about this particular subject. And we complete this shit sandwich by sprinkling in some white supremacy. Get them to think that racism no longer is an issue and that it's actually the white people who are the victims of racism. Oh yeah, bring up how the supposed link between race and IQ definitely exists because I promise you, if you throw in words like biology and science, it adds a more intellectual veneer to your argument and makes you sound way smarter and more persuasive as a result. Now, once you've gotten them to see the light on these key social issues, or at least influence them to be open to hearing more about your argument and worldview, you can then introduce them to right-wing YouTubers such as myself who will continue to scratch that anti-SJW itch. Remember, we just need you to make the initial sales pitch and then right-wing propagandists such as myself, Stephen Crowder, Stefan Molyneux, or Ben Shapiro will close the sale. And once they start watching those guys and see how easily college students can be destroyed by media-trained propagandists on issues related to social justice, they finally begin to realize that these influencers, people like myself, must also be right about other issues too. Perhaps economic theories like trickle-down or deregulation are also correct. Maybe climate change is real, but perhaps humans aren't the ones causing it. You see, we're not really making any definitive statements here. We're just asking questions. Now, I'm going to be completely honest here. At PragerU, we don't actually give a flying fuck about SJWs on college campuses. We just use them as bait in hopes that unsuspecting dipshits bite it, and once they do, we reel them in and get them to support a political party and economic system that's wholly against their own self-interest. Now, I should mention that we do have to stay firmly committed to this idea that we hate any and all identity politics, but if you're gay, if you're black or a woman, We'd actually really like to hire you especially, because you guys get to say all the fucked up shit about your community that others can't. For example, I get a nice bonus every time I bring up my husband, and then subsequently give one of my right-wing colleagues permission to call me a faggot. Now, I know what you're going to say. Doesn't all of this seem immoral? To be this divisive and intentionally so discord socially in order to keep the peasants fighting? while people like me rob them blindly and legitimize an exploitative and unjust system? Well, sure. And I'll admit, sometimes I do feel bad about it, but then I remind myself that it's nothing personal, it's just business. You see, we live in a capitalist system, and I'm just simply greasing the wheels. I'm riding the wave of capitalism until it inevitably consumes itself and brings down the entire fucking planet in the process. And what I'm doing now is using the money I'm making to buy one of those lifeboats that other rich people will probably have once the planet inevitably becomes uninhabitable. And I'm gonna then watch peasants fight over crumbs and kill each other from a safe distance. See, I'm looking at the bigger picture. I'm looking out for my future and your future as well. In fact, all of us are at PragerU. It's about survival. Now, of course, I'd never say any of this out loud and publicly I'll continue to identify as a centrist or technically left wing because that helps us to cultivate a little bit more trust among viewers and you should do the same. So join the cause, get educated by PragerU because we're definitely a real university after all because uh, you learned something by watching this, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Dude.
dumb motherfuckers. I have to admit, Marianne Williamson, she keeps continuing to impress me. I was not feeling her at first, but she went on the debate stage and uh, she she certainly left, you know, an impression on me. Uh, I don't know if it was positive or negative, but I mean, she said things that I think were endearing. Uh, she then decided to fundraise for Mike Gravel in order to help him meet the debate threshold. And she just keeps going up in my book. And now she went up even higher in my book because she went on the Rubin Report and proceeded to completely dismantle his right-wing worldview. And it was absolutely glorious because I don't know if she was familiar with the Rubin Report, but it was clear that she was honestly dumbfounded by some of the idiotic things that he was saying. Like, she was able to call out right-wing talking points like that, and you could tell, like, she was speechless at certain points based on the things that he said and how stupid that they were. So, I've got a couple of clips for you, and there's a lot here, but first, I want to show you a clip where she responded to something that he said that was obviously pretty weird. So they were talking about reparations for American descendants of slavery, and she was talking about how healthy it's been for German society to atone for the crimes that were committed against German Jews during the Holocaust. And she thoroughly lays out all the crimes that the United States government committed against black Americans, from slavery to Jim Crow to redlining. But Dave Rubin then tries to challenge her on that point, and he posits that, you know, maybe it's not acceptable for us to compare, you know, the Holocaust to slavery. Watch her response here, because I think it's going to speak for pretty much everyone uh, <laughs> who knows what Dave Rubin is about. I mean, a couple of times you're referencing the genocide of the Jews to, to slavery. Seems like a little bit of a, a slippery slope there, no? I don't even know how we can say that, actually. And I say that as a Jew. Have you read up much on slavery? Yeah. We're talking abject slavery day. I mean, nobody's in a contest. Nobody has a monopoly on human suffering. This was abject slavery. Million, and also, if you started slavery in 1619 and you had two and a half years, two, two and a half centuries, and then at the end four, there were four to five million enslaved people, do, do you realize generation after generation how many millions of people we're talking about? She was genuinely baffled by his ignorance. Baffled by it. Like, he is probably of the mind that, look, we abolished slavery. We freed the slaves, and now they're free. Spread your wings and fly. But life isn't that simple. Life isn't that simple. Discrimination doesn't just go away. It still exists. There were still very explicit discriminatory policies against black and brown people in this country. This shouldn't have to be explained to someone who's a political commentator. You should just know it. But the fact that he doesn't know it, and he clearly did not read up on the history of slavery, I mean, that speaks to Marianne's response there. She was weirded out. So I don't really have anything to add because her reaction there said everything that I wanted to say. But moving on, uh, there was a point where he strawmanned members of the Democratic Party who are running for president. And this is a strawman of the left in general. Whenever the issue of immigration comes up, the right strawmans us and says, oh, will you support open borders? When, I mean, you can never find an example of a lefty talking about open borders. So she acknowledges that and then shuts it down immediately. Uh, it seems like everyone's kind of veering to some version of open borders, that that's somehow no, something kind of. No, so you say tell you're a me. Democrat. Where do you get this? Well, I don't consider you say I'm a Democrat. 
Democrat. No, no, I don't consider myself a Democrat anymore. I don't consider myself a Republican, but I'm definitely not a Democrat. I have not heard one candidate. Well, they won't say it, but but the policies seem to be. Oh, you don't say it, but you really, I mean, is that healthy, honorable debate? You say it if you believe it. I don't believe it. You can have well, healthy... No, I, I, I take them at their word, and it seems to me that but the policies is, ultimately are... Why? Why? If you say we should have proper security at the border, but that is going to take... Remember, the president has closed a lot of the ports of entry. That is what has created so much of the squeeze here, because he's closed so many of the, of the border entry points. Of course, we need, we need border enforcement. Now... Right before they got to that part of the conversation, Dave Rubin was talking about how healthy it is to have this debate, you know, from people who have different opinions on things. And then she took it and threw it right back in his face when he proceeded to straw man members of the left. She said, is that healthy and honorable debate, Dave? That was absolutely brilliant. And then Dave Rubin tried to justify his claim that Democrats support open borders by saying, look, I take them at their word. And it seems to me that the policies ultimately are dot, dot, dot. What? What are the policies that suggest they support open borders? Because there's no policy from anyone running for president or anyone in Congress, I'd argue, that supports open borders. So Name a policy that you think would facilitate open borders. Name one. Name a single policy, Dave. You can't do it. And he says, I'm going to take them at their word and then admits that he's not taking them at their word because he looks at their policies and the policies are really telling you that they support open borders. So do you take them at their word or do you look at the policies? Which one? Because what you're saying is contradictory, but he doesn't even realize it. And I think that this just speaks to the stupidity of Dave Rubin. Now, I haven't seen like a long form discussion with Dave Rubin, I think, since the David Pakman interview. But I mean, listening to him speak and I watched the whole thing, whole thing. It really is insufferable. Like he clearly doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And it's not just that he's uneducated and ignorant about the issues that he's supposed to know about, given that he's a political commentator. But he also asks just downright weird questions to Marianne. Case in point. Do you want to be president or do you want to be sort of like a, like it, that there should almost be like a side thing next to president, sort of like no, where, where in the, you know, in many other countries, there's a president and a prime minister where there's sort of. No, we have a constitution. Yeah. I'm fine with the constitution. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting we alter the constitution. Yeah. Prime, no, no, no. Well, I mean that, I actually no. mean that more spiritually where a lot of the things you're talking about maybe. Hey, person who's running for president, do you actually want to be president or would you rather be, you know, sort of a side thing? What? A side thing? <laughs> and then he gives the example of countries that have presidents and prime ministers. So I think that the word he was looking for when he said side thing was head of state. And yes, it is true that there are countries with presidents and prime ministers. But Dave, those are parliamentary systems where the president oftentimes will serve as the role of head of state. That's how Turkey was for a long time until it was reformed by Erdogan. So, like, he literally doesn't know what a head of state is. Like, how are you a political commentator? How do you have a million subscribers when you don't know basic things? Why would she be running to be a side thing when if you are elected president, part of the job is that you also serve as head of state, which just means you are a glorified representative of the United States. I mean, what a weird question of all the questions that you can ask a presidential candidate. That's what he comes up with? What? That's so stupid, Dave. Do you not understand how you sound? That's so stupid. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, 
it's bizarre. But that's not the only time where he said something that was completely bizarre. You know, I know billionaires who say, sounds right to me. I know a billionaire who said to me, living in this town, who once said to me, my taxes are so low, it's obscene. And, and what's, is why, why does he need the government to do something with his money? Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you're asking Marianne Williamson why the government does stuff. Is that literally what you're asking her? Why does the government have to do something with the money from billionaires? Because they're not just going to voluntarily give up their wealth. So you have to take it from them and then redistribute that. But in his ideal libertarian scenario, you know, they would just willy-nilly voluntarily give up their wealth. But what he doesn't realize is that even if billionaires were not greedy and they chose to subvert government and distribute their money back to their communities, that would be an incredibly complex, complicated process, which would require them to form some sort of organization and determine, you know, what's the best way to redistribute their wealth, which would require some type of structure, which then requires a type of leadership situation and a hierarchy. But then how do you determine who gets what? But wait, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it seem like we've come full circle? And now, even if in your ideal scenario, that sounds a lot like governance. I mean, yes, governments do stuff, Dave. That's what they do. Their goal is governance. That's what governments do. Like, he doesn't even seem to have an elementary understanding of the way that things work. And it's just, it's perplexing that you can have that big of a platform and be that ignorant to basic details about political systems like he doesn't know what a head of state is presumably um he's literally asking a presidential candidate hey why does government does stuff what he then goes on to challenge this idea that you know maybe governments shouldn't compel businesses to raise the minimum wage and then marianne williamson again proceeds to give him a rhetorical beatdown. So if I wanted to hire somebody here, just a PA or somebody to fill water glasses and things, you would want the government to be able to tell me, to no, tell my company. You know, what... No, because we're in Los Angeles and you can afford $15 an hour theoretically. Well, Los right, Angeles. but it's not about what I can theoretically afford or not. Yes, if it I... is. How yes, is that? Is. So if I, but yes, I, because I have tons of people that would love to work for me for free. We pay our interns. I don't have, I don't want anyone, I pay 100% of all my right. employees' health insurance. I don't right. want anyone to right. work for me for free. But the idea that the government could come in if I wanted to pay someone, say, $12, because I could have several people do it for free, the idea that the government could come well, in and tell me. you look at something like fast food restaurants, okay? Yeah. So, 20 years ago, somebody worked as a, at a fast food restaurant as a after school, you know, they were young people. Today, this is how people pay their bills and have to have two and three jobs. There are. But if you force those companies to pay those people more, aren't they just going to replace those people with iPads? I mean, we see that happening now. This is mentally exhausting. If you force those companies to pay people more, aren't they just going to replace those workers with iPads? Dave, you're a capitalist. Do you not even understand? how the system that you shill for works? I mean, to believe that, you would suppose that, you know, these companies, if you make them pay their employees a higher wage, then they're going to retaliate and then they're just going to lay people off. They're going to say, you know what? I'm going to punish you by laying you off now since I have to pay you more. And now I'm going to replace you with an iPad. Ha ha. 
oh, what's that? You want to unionize and demand more? Well, I'm just going to automate away your job if you do that, peasant. I mean, that's not how capitalism works. The goal is to maximize profits, so they're going to replace workers, it's inevitable, with iPads if they believe that they can do that and it will be profitable for them. They're not going to do that as a means of protesting against the minimum wage increase. Regardless, if government raises the minimum wage or not, they're going to automate away as much jobs as they possibly can because their behavior is driven by the desire to always increase profits. That's the way that capitalism has and always will work. It's why companies like Activision Blizzard, for example, they raked in record profits and then they still laid off 800 employees. It's because they wanted to make even more money after making a shit ton of money. I mean, this is what a capitalist system incentivizes. So, To suggest, oh, well, you know, we don't want to do too much in terms of regulation because these companies might be spiteful and automate away these jobs. No, they're going to automate away the jobs regardless of what government does and does not do. Because if they believe that they will make more money by automating away jobs, that's exactly what they are going to do regardless of if we increase or decrease the minimum wage, which seems like uh, is what you want. Now... He makes all these right-wing libertarian arguments, but he still has the audacity to laughably say this. Now, Believe it or not, I actually consider myself a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Jan. Oh, give it a rest already. I mean, nobody believes that you're a liberal. Functionally speaking, you are not liberal. You're not left-wing. And I get it. This is a grift. You make more money and you cultivate more legitimacy if you say that you are left-wing, but I'm criticizing the left. Like, it makes it seem as if you're someone who's being introspective and cares about the left. But I mean, in order to maintain that facade... There has to be a certain line that you draw for yourself that you don't cross. Meaning, if I cross into this territory too much, people might suspect that I'm not actually a liberal. And not only did you cross that line, you veered way off to the opposite side. I mean, you're teaming up with PragerU, Turning Point USA. These are organizations that are funded by right-wing billionaires. The Rubin Report teamed up with Learn Liberty, which is funded by the Koch brothers. I mean, how can you possibly still with a straight face say, I'm liberal after you have lived your life as a conservative for the past two, three years? I mean, give it a rest. Nobody believes you. Nobody believes you. The grift has to be believable in order to continue. But at this point, you just need to own that you're conservative because you are. But he still, till this day, gets triggered whenever somebody calls him conservative. And he said it twice during this interview. He said, no, I'm actually a liberal. Okay, Dave. Sure, Jan. Now, I want to get to the final part, um, which is probably my favorite clip here, because he's going to promote this idea that small government is inherently superior. And Marianne Williamson, though, is going to come through and totally dismantle that naive idea in a matter of minutes. And what she did here was just artful. I give money to poor people when I can, and I volunteer when I can, and things that I do at sort of the personal level, but that it seems like a lot of the answers that are coming out from everybody on the Democratic side right now are just that the government should do these things. And I would, me personally, would always be leery of the government because the government is the people that put people in slavery. The government is the thing that that exterminated six million Jews, et cetera, et cetera. So my preference would always be that we're always taking power away from the government, we're giving the government less money so that it will spend less and do less things so that we can do all of those things in our personal lives. 
And I wish I heard more out of, from the Democrats about well, that sort of thing. There is a healthy skepticism that anyone should feel, any American should feel, left or right, towards government overreach. And leftists feel just as much as you do, it just tends to be in different places. Okay. Like stay out of our bedroom, etc. Okay. So healthy skepticism about overreach by government. But let's not kid ourselves, Dave. The people we're talking about government doing less today aren't saying small government. They're saying let's just give the money to corporate control. So whereas you're saying you don't want overreach by government, I'm saying what it has turned into in this country, it's code. Less, less, less overreach by government has turned into huge overreach by corporate forces. So all the money that you're saying, well, I don't want the government to do that, all that money's just been marched over to short-term profit maximization for health insurance companies and, and big pharmaceutical companies and gun manufacturers and chemical companies and fossil fuel companies and defense contractors. Their overreach, the overreach of this new matrix of corporate overlords is to me to be feared just as much as overreach by government. So you think that's something... And by the way, no amount... You talked about how you give. No amount of private charity. And we always need private charity. And government can't do everything, nor should government do everything. But no amount of private charity can, can compensate for a basic lack of social justice. You know, you, you can give a million dollars, and it's oh so wonderful, but basically because of our tax structure, billions are going to the same situation that makes it so difficult for that person so that just dropping a million dollars into a charity... It helps, but it doesn't in any way change the fundamental pattern of injustice. <laughs> I was thoroughly impressed by Marianne Williams in here. She said, quote, the people saying small government should do less today aren't saying small government. They're saying, let's just give the money to corporate control. Exactly. Because if you truly are arguing in favor of smaller government in a capitalist system, then you're not getting rid of tyranny. You're just trading it for a different type of tyranny. You're saying, I want large multinational corporations to handle the job of government, which is governance. And the problem with that is, see, government is at least accountable to people. You can vote and you can argue and debate about how powerful that makes you in a democratic society, but nonetheless, you can still exercise some level of power, which means that you have accountability over government. But when it comes to Nike or Amazon or Comcast, we don't elect members on their board. We have no say. So you're not getting rid of tyranny and authoritarianism if you reduce the size of government. You're just trading it for a different type of governance that I would argue is a lot more harmful. But see, to him, he simplifies the view of the world. Like, to him, good governance and crafting public policy isn't necessarily all of these complicated interrelated things. It's just a matter of determining how big government should be on any given political issue. You see, on this issue, I think that we should adjust the size of the government scale to a six. We'll make it that big. And on this other issue, let's reduce it to a two. Let's make it really small there. I mean, intelligent people realize that good public policy and making good public policy is a lot more complicated than that. But Dave Rubin doesn't get that. To him, big government versus small government is the entirety of the discussion when it comes to politics. You can reduce all of politics down to the size of government to Dave Rubin. He's like a 12-year-old. He's so naive. But I'll end it there. You know, there were other things that I want to show you. He literally had the audacity to ask her if Trump deserves credit because he changed his mind about bombing Iran and she shut that down and... 
there was so much it was difficult to single out just a couple of clips because i could talk about this entire interview and just do an entire humanist report episode on this alone but we have to cut it off somewhere this video is already way too long um and we'll leave that there marianne williamson completely and utterly dismantled dave rubin's libertarian worldview in less than two minutes brilliant well played marianne keep up the good work okay so let's talk about a clip from the candace owens show and yes unfortunately that is a thing now if you know anything about candace owens you know that he absolutely hates transgender people and is always saying some transphobic explicitly hateful thing about this marginalized and vulnerable community but in this particular clip that i'm about to play for you candace owens is going to take the trans hate and he's going to turn it up to an 11. So let's go ahead and watch. It's a short clip, but I have so much to say about this. I could talk about this literally for hours possibly, but um, I'll bring it down for you and why everything that he's saying here is disgusting. I even, I'm actually like staunchly conservative when it comes to the trans debate and people say, oh, well, even if a person is trans, you should have the decency and the respect to call them by their preferred pronoun. I don't play that game. And what I always say to people is, if you have a mental disorder, that's fine. You know, I don't need to come up to you and tell you that I think you have a mental disorder. That would be rude. Right. But when you have a mental disorder and you're now requiring that I have a mental disorder, right, to, to, to meet your mental disorder, that doesn't work for me. Which is to say that if somebody was walking around as a schizophrenic and saying that they were Superman, and then telling me that I was required to treat them like Superman, I wouldn't play the game. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about trans. I think the, the slope is so slippery, and they find that to be bigotry. No, I don't need. To, I'm not going to call you she. I'm not going to call you her just because you're a grown man and you're wearing a wig and a dress. That, right. yeah, that's literally telling me that I am now required to have a mental disorder because you have one. Uh, you know, I try to to do it in public where I I will not use the the fake pronoun. So now, now it's so confusing because if there's a man who thinks he's a woman and you refer to him as a man, what the culture tells you is you're misgendering him. Right. The, only, the only people misgendering anybody are the ones pretending the man is a woman. That's correct. So I refuse to refer to the man as she. However, in, a, in an interpersonal, if we were at a dinner party or something, I will use whatever language he wants me to use to refer to him in the same way that if there were a schizophrenic at a dinner party, I would indulge the delusion that there were voices speaking. I right. mean, it is a, obviously it's a psychological condition, but what the left wants is to have their cake and eat it too. They want to say, this is a very serious psychological condition and you have to indulge it. Also, you want, you have to treat it as though it's objectively true. Right. That's where Change I Change the bathroom signs right. now, right? Change because this person, th this, this person now needs to feel like there's a place for them to go that's safe. And I'm like, could you imagine a world, take it, take it out of the trans debate where we had to now accommodate everyone that was suffering with schizophrenia and we needed to make the world look like as they were seeing it or the voices that they were hearing. We, we needed to um, basically get on our knees and, and um, support whatever it is that they were saying. People would say that was, that was crazy, that that was nuts, but they, they think it's different somehow with the trans debate. And I don't know why the trans debate is now being steamrolled into the LGB debate. How is that not obvious to you? How do you not recognize the commonality between all people within the broad LGBTQ plus category. The reason why we put LGB and T in the same category is because we all violate the same sex and gender norms. I don't know how she hasn't picked up on this yet since she talks about it all the time, but I mean, when you are born, and let's say you're born with a penis, 
Well, society ascribes a role to you. You're supposed to act masculine. You're supposed to be attracted to women and date women and have sexual intercourse with women. And if you're born with a vagina, you're supposed to act feminine and express yourself that way and wear dresses and have long hair and date men and be attracted to men. But not everyone fits neatly into one box. Lesbians, gays, and bisexuals as well as transgender people and non-binary people, don't conform, but yet we still are discriminated against because we violate the same sex and gender norms that have been assigned to us at birth. That's why we put all of them in the same category. I don't even know how this isn't obvious at this point, but everything that Candace Owens says here, he just, he takes the hate and he takes it further than ever before. And by the way, since Candace Owens isn't going to respect the preferred pronouns of transgender people, then I have absolutely no reason to respect his preferred pronouns. So I'm assuming that uh, Candace would like to use she, her pronouns, but I mean, I'm not going to respect hers if she's not going to respect trans people's. So I will be using male pronouns to refer to Candace Owens because um, if you want to be addicted to trans people, then you need to expect that there are going to be people that will give you a taste of your own medicine. So let's break down why what he said here is utterly fucking absurd. It's incorrect and it's laughable. Like, this is stupidity that we just saw. Quote, I'm staunchly conservative when it comes to the trans debate. And people say, oh, well, even if a person is trans, you should have the decency and respect to call them by their preferred pronoun. I don't play that game. Okay, so I won't play that game either. But how is this a game? Like, respecting people and not being dicks to people? That's a game to Candace Owens. Respecting the wishes of someone is a game to her. Oh no, I don't have to play that game because it's a fact, scientifically speaking, because I definitely know what I'm talking about, that you are not biologically male or female. So I don't have to play that quote unquote game because facts first, facts don't care about your feelings. But when it comes to climate change, I don't believe this like at all, just so you know. Quote, when you have a mental disorder and you're now requiring that I have a mental disorder to meet your mental disorder, that doesn't work for me. That's now literally requiring me to have a mental disorder because you have one. In other words, if you are a trans person and you expect me to use your preferred pronouns, well, I'm just buying into your delusions. Because if somebody is hallucinating and they see a bunch of bugs crawling on the wall and they're not there, then why should I have to play to that and say, oh, you know, you're correct. There are bugs crawling on the wall. No, I don't have to do that. So what she's saying here is really dumb. And the example that she uses, like she creates an analogy to demonstrate why we shouldn't do this. Quote, if somebody were walking around as a schizophrenic and telling me they're Superman, I'm required to treat them like they're Superman. I wouldn't play that game. Understand why this is such an idiotic comparison to make. It's obviously a false equivalence, but it's just downright fucking dumb. Like, there are people in the world that express themselves as either masculine or feminine, somewhere in between or somewhere outside of that spectrum. But there is nobody in the world who is capable of flying and having superhuman strength. Like, do you understand why these are not the same things, Candace? One of them actually is not realistic in the laws of physics like somebody can't literally be superman but somebody can express a gender identity we all do it so what are you talking about what are you even talking about obviously this is a false equivalence but understand what she's doing here it's so stupid she's essentially saying that 
Gender dysphoria and schizophrenia, these are comparable. These are basically the same things. Take it from me, because I definitely know more than the American Psychological Association. I know more than the American Medical Association. So disregard what they say about gender dysphoria and mental health, and listen to what I say. And what she says is basically, look, you've got to rip the Band-Aid off. You need to tell people that you were born male, so uh, you're a man. Don't buy into their delusions, according to Candace Owens. I mean, what she's essentially proposing here is a type of cognitive behavioral exposure type therapy to trans people, where you believe that, you know, the best way to overcome a mental health issue or something that you're fearful of, more specifically, is you get exposure to it. What she's saying is, you know, if trans people are given the same type of recommendation, if we tell them, just be exposed to what makes you feel uncomfortable that is your original gender that was assigned to you at birth on the basis of your sex then obviously that's a way to overcome it so i'm actually helping you because by saying no you're not actually a man i'm exposing you to the reality of the situation and that's good for you except there's a flaw with this line of thinking and why it's obviously a false equivalence transgender people have undergone the most extensive exposure therapy imaginable they lived their lives as the gender that they don't identify with they have a brain that is the opposite gender than the one that was assigned to them so they've been exposed to it and they didn't just willy-nilly decide you know what i think i want to try living as the opposite gender or a non-binary gender just to see how it feels They've been exposed to it. So this is why I'm saying when you start getting in the realm of psychology and you start trying to analyze or psychoanalyze transgender people, my response is shut the fuck up, Candace, because you obviously have no clue what you're talking about. Don't you find it odd that plastic surgery can cure a mental disorder? This reminds me of... There was a subreddit before. I don't remember what it was called. It was either called Fat Hate or Fat People Hate. And essentially what the members of this subreddit would do was they would take pictures of unsuspecting overweight people, post it to the subreddit, and then everyone would make fun of them and say, wow, how disgusting it is that this person is overweight. Now, what's insane about this is people in this subreddit, they actually deluded themselves into thinking that they weren't just bullying people who were overweight. They were actually doing something good because the idea was if we just make fun of these people, that will give them the courage to change because they'll see how disgusting we think they are and then that will encourage them to lose weight a problem though is that this doesn't work shaming people into doing what you think is best for them is never a strategy that is best for them in fact it's incredibly destructive and as she says this about trans people she acts like she's saying something revolutionary like do you realize that for every historically marginalized and oppressed group in society this has been the same response. Like, you're not proposing anything new and innovative. What did we say about gay people? It's a mental disorder. If we just force them to date the opposite gender, then eventually they'll get over it. Oh, what's that? You want to be in an interracial relationship? Don't you know that this is not natural? So we should tell them directly that we disapprove. Oh, what's that? You're a slave and you think you should have equal rights as me, a white property owner? Well, I should tell you that you're being delusional here. I mean, what she's saying is completely old. It's It's been what we use 
to justify bigotry against marginalized communities. But what Candace Owens is saying is, look, I have the solution. We just have to treat transgender people like shit enough to where they'll detransition and then they'll go away and this won't be an issue. But it's incredibly hateful. You're literally encouraging hatred. You're encouraging hatred. And history is going to judge you, Candace, very harshly because of this. Now, I know that Candace Owens himself will be fine, right? Candace Owens is always going to be able to make money off of this grift so long as she remains committed to this right-wing conservative ideology because there's going to be, you know, a, a, a market need for her type of shilling. But for the people who watch Candace Owens, who actually respect her and take what she's saying seriously, they're going to make social media posts about transgender people and how horrible they are and disgusting they are. And then 10, 15 years down the line, when transgender people are actually fully accepted and have full rights, because that's going to happen, we will win this battle. Then these people will get fired. They'll have to come out and apologize. But look, you don't even have to put yourself through all of this misery. We've seen this story play out before. Civil rights will be won for transgender people. And we're never going to fully get 100% success rate in terms of social acceptance. But by and large, just like gay people, the tide will turn in their favor. It's just a matter of when will that happen and which side do you want to be on? Because this isn't a debate, Candace. It's non-debatable. We don't debate whether or not we treat people who are different than us as equals. We just treat them equally, and those who don't will be judged very harshly by history. So that's all I'll say. I'll leave it there because I could talk about this for a really long time because this is personal to me. Like, I am part of the LGBTQ community. I may be cisgender, but these are my people. These are my people. And so you are actively encouraging people to treat them poorly. And you're trying to do that under the guise of, oh, no, 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 I, I'm helping them. I promise you. Get the fuck out of here. You're disgusting. You're a transphobic bigot. And I really do hope that you one day regret the way that you feel. I hope that you wake up. Because being hateful, it may pay off for you in the short term, but long term, you're not helping yourself. And you're certainly... Not helping society, Candace. I don't know why I continue to do this to myself, but here we are. So I have another one of CNN's voter panels. <laughs> Every time I watch one of these, my, you know, um, my view of humanity tends to go down. And this one is probably going to cause humanity to take the biggest hit yet. Because this panel contains female Trump voters and they respond to his racist tirade against members of the squad. And for those of you who don't know, obviously, that is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. So what he said about them, go back to your own country. Obviously, it was racist. Obviously, Donald Trump is racist himself. Um, but let's see what they have to say, because I think, you know, if you had to guess, they probably loved it. All right, here we go. How many of you, how many of you don't think what the president said was racist? Raise your hand. These eight Republican... <laughs> <laughs> All eight of them raised their hands. How do you not think that that's racist? I mean, what else does he have to do? He could literally, like, wear blackface and, 
use you know racial slurs and they would still raise their hands and say of course he's not racist how could he be racist what's racist about it i mean there's literally there's no ceiling like there's no level of racism that donald trump can express that would get them to say oh he must be racist like there's no switch the light bulb's never going off it doesn't matter what he does he's never racist in their eyes from Dallas, don't see anything wrong with President Trump telling four Democratic congresswomen to go back where they came from. He was saying that if they hate America so much because what we're seeing out of them and hearing out of them, they hate America. If it's so bad, there's a lot of places they can go. I'm a brown-skinned woman. I am a legal immigrant. I agree with him. Yeah. You don't think that's racist to say no, that? Not at all. It's a demonstration of how their ideology spills over. Even though they're American now, so to speak, they're not acting American. They I'm glad that Hang the on. president said what he said because... Okay. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. They're not acting American. What does it mean to act American? You could make the same argument about Donald Trump. He's not acting American because we've never had a president this dumb, this belligerent. So what does that even mean? She's imposing what she believes American means. And let's let's be real. Being American, in their view, means you have to be white. And you have to be pro-flag. You have to hump the flag. And fuck your guns. That's the only way you're American enough for these people. Uh, th there's absolutely no other way that you are equal to them if you don't do these things. Like, th these people are, they're not serious people. They're not serious people. They have a very naive worldview. They probably get all of their news and information from Fox News, which means that they actually are less informed than people who consume no news. But nonetheless, this is the reality of the situation. These people vote. And this lady just said uh, something to the effect of, if I'm remembering correctly, I'm glad he said it. All they're they're doing is, it, they're they're it's they're inciting hatred and division, and that's not what our country's about. We, it, it's it's not about that at all. And but I don't. Isn't that what the president does with some about. of his own comments, his own racist comments? But he didn't say anything about color. We know the president. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come on! Oh my God. How? How can you say that with a straight face? You know, these women, they're just so divisive. But isn't that what the president is doing? Yeah, but he didn't say anything about color. No hope for humanity. No hope. Color. We know the president is not racist. He, he loves people from, you know, Hispanics, the black people, all across the board. Let me just... <laughs> like, okay, you can believe that the president is not racist i would contend that you're probably a little bit delusional at this point but if you believe that he's not racist then how do you explain why his policies have a racial effect like they hurt people they hurt marginalized people you can think oddly if you want to believe that he loves transgender people but he banned them from serving in the military so even if you believe that he's not a uh, racist how do you not get that conflict in your mind that, oh, well, he's doing policies X, Y, and Z? And I've gone too far. I'm giving them too much credit because they would never accept that his policies, you know, have racial consequences. Um, they would never accept that, you know, anything the Republican Party does, voter ID laws, these are not racist, even though they are intended to target and reduce the turnout of people of color.
with you the definition of racism from Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Mm -hmm. A belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. Based on that definition, do you not think what the president has been saying to these No, he's he dated a black woman for two years. <laughs> what did she, let me go back. If she said what I think she said, then I'm going to die. Think what the president has been saying. No, to these no he, he dated a black woman for Makes two years. Oh, uh, I can't. This is like. Uh, he can't be racist. One time, you know, he went to the store and the cashier was black and he didn't say anything racist. There's your evidence. Boom. Gotcha. Mic drop. These people are just they're not living in the same reality that we're all living in like it's an alternate universe that coexists between you know their universe and our universe like how are they not seeing what we see his wives are immigrants he is not a xenophobic racist but the first the black billionaire is endorsing president trump yeah how can you call him racist so that's such a great point. The first black billionaire endorsed him, so there's no way he could possibly be racist. Wow, why didn't I think about that? Amazing. So if you ever say anything racist, just get, uh, I I'm assuming she's talking about Kanye West, just get Kanye West to say that what you said or did is not racist, then boom, your hands are clean. I mean, I, I just, I don't get how this is compelling to them. How is this a compelling argument to you? You really believe that because Kanye likes him, this doesn't make him racist? How do you explain Central Park Five? How do you explain him discriminating against black tenants in the 70s and 80s? How? How do you explain that? Do you just not know about this? Or do you do know and then you're willfully, you know, ignorant after that? I mean, you're defending someone who is not just maybe racist. He is explicitly openly racist. This isn't dog whistle racism that Donald Trump is expressing. This is bullhorn racism. And you're defending that. And it's not just that he is a bad person because he's racist. He's a bad person because... He has a history of hurting people, hurting vulnerable communities. He's literally an accused rapist, and you're defending this asshole. I mean, Jesus Christ, I can understand separating, you know, the politician and the policies from the personal life. I get it, but at what point do you draw the line? Like, if Bernie Sanders was accused of rape, if he was accused of being racist and there was reason to believe that he was in fact racist, various examples and anecdotes to demonstrate how racist he is, I don't think I could support him even if he had good policy because, I mean, I, I, you would have to draw the line somewhere. Having good moral character, that does matter if you're running the country because we have the most strong military, the biggest economy ever. So, I mean, yeah, I think that having morality... It does matter, contrary to popular belief. But let's continue. I don't know why I'm getting upset, because I, this is what I expected. These congressmen, these congressmen who said they ran for Congress, ran for office because they explicitly love this country, you're saying that's a lie. So yes. Say. Yeah, you you're lie. saying they hate this country. Yes. Do you ever wrote these questions up? It's clearly that they're very manipulative to yep. accuse as a... It, it, 
instead of extracting the truth. It's a tactic. Because when you it say, is. you know, don't you think he's racist? You're accusing us. You're accusing him. I'm but asking the not not accusing. I'm asking you what but you, you think. But you can tell. We, okay. It's irrelevant. Here's one thing that I think all Republicans have in common. Accusing someone of being racist is a worse sin than actually being racist like you hear them denounce people who accuse others of being racist but how frequently do they actually denounce racism i mean that's the bigger sin don't ever accuse anyone of being racist because that's worse than actual racism these people are not serious has nothing to do with the real issue. It has nothing to do with the premise of the issues here. Exactly. Nothing. And whatever someone... The color of the four. Why do you keep bringing it up? Do you think it's just a coincidence that yes. these four congresswomen that the president is going after, none of them are white? These yes, four they're going after them. I don't think it matters. Yeah. It's idiotic well, also, what they're the other, saying. It, so it doesn't matter whether they're white. What they're saying is idiotic. What specifically are they saying that you deem idiotic and let's remember you support donald trump the man who said that puerto rico is surrounded by big water so before you call any other politician idiotic you need to evaluate who you're supporting because we are seeing donald trump's brain melt out of his ears like he he has decayed mentally substantially since he was sworn into office so I think that if you're worried about the intelligence and mental capacity of anyone in Congress or anyone in government, you need to look to Donald Trump first because there's nobody dumber than him. Nobody dumber. And I'm not just saying, look, Donald Trump has a low IQ. I'm saying not only do I think he has a low IQ, but he also has very substantial underlying psychological issues going on there. That's obvious. Everyone sees it. Except you man woman brown yellow anything i wish that there was a white one that they they um why are they not racist how come they haven't befriended one of their white female congresswoman colleagues and let her join because they won't that's a good point they don't like white people come on oh my god okay let me just let her finish racist how many of you still plan to vote for president trump absolutely absolutely randy k see wow there's no white members of the squad, so um, they must be racist. What? I mean, do you hear yourself? First of all, they all have a liking to one another and their friends because they all ran on the Justice Democrats platform. They're all Justice Democrats. They all were part of brand new Congress. So they all ran on the same platform of not taking corporate money, being uncompromisingly and unapologetically progressive. So they have that commonality. But I mean, to say, oh, well, they don't have any white members of the squad. Let's say that there was a white person who was part of the squad. Would Donald Trump target her out as much as he targets out them? Probably not. And do we know why? It's because he's a fucking racist. Bernie Sanders is as unapologetically progressive as they are. How often does Donald Trump attack Bernie Sanders? Representative Mark Pocan, very, very progressive male. He's white. Does Trump ever go after him? Is it just a coincidence that he only goes after brown and black people?
You don't find that odd? Even if you thought it was just a coincidence, maybe you would think, well, the optics don't look too good, so maybe he should refrain from attacking only black people. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Um, I expected them to be this dumb, quite frankly. But, um, I mean, these are the people who I think are just too far gone. You're not going to get them. And it wouldn't be a problem if people realize this. But the Democratic Party believes that there are things you can do to win these people over. You're not going to win them over. You're not going to win them over. You have to do what the Republican Party does if you want to win and beat Republicans. What they do is they throw red meat to the base. That's what Donald Trump did when he singled out members of the squad. So Democrats have to have a parallel but opposite strategy. And that strategy is you, you know, throw red meat to your base. That's, it's as simple as that. But not to get, you know, too far off track here. Man, seeing stuff like this, I just, <laughs> there's, there's no fucking hope. I need to stop watching these because um, sometimes they're great. Most of the time, like nine times out of 10, these videos are soul crushing. You want to know a joke? CNN. <laughs> I love how I'll tell the most unfunny dad joke ever and then proceed to laugh at my own joke. I, I acknowledge how insufferable I am sometimes, so I apologize for that. Look, the point is, CNN is blatantly biased against Bernie Sanders. That's what I'm trying to convey to you, the viewer. And as someone who has had membership to the Brotherhood of the Bernard for many years now, um, I can spot it easily. But they're making it easier to spot because they're being so brazen. So in an interview with Bernie Sanders campaign manager Faiz Shakir, um, what they did here was just shameless. They cherry-picked data to make Bernie Sanders appear less electable than he is in actuality and then proceeded to falsely say that Bernie Sanders actually doesn't even have support of the Democratic Party base. His policies are not popular among the Democratic Party. Now, I think that Faiz did a pretty good job at shutting down this misinformation and pushing back, but we'll watch and then I have, you know, some commentary to supplement this clip because it's just, again, it's shameless not to be redundant. No, no, go ahead. I, I, we, did, we want to talk a little bit yeah. about socialism, <laughs> too, and, and we both have a few questions for you on socialism because we heard it was on this program yesterday that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said, this is the new Democratic Socialist Majority which maybe you guys embraced, right, because of the, the position of Senator Sanders as a socialist. Um, is that helpful, though, to the Democratic Party overall, do you guys think? Well, so let me, let me just say about Donald Trump, who's attacking in a very racist way for really members just of... Tight on time and asking right, you right. about I just, that. I just want to say, like, they, what he's doing is attacking them because their policies, which is free tuition at uh, public colleges and universities, canceling student debt, Medicare for all. He, instead of having that debate about policies, he wants to take it into a racist place. What I'm saying is those policies are quite popular, and, and instead of having that debate on policies, he's trying to elide that debate. We think that this is the popular approach to go. Americans support this but across the, the board. But the numbers don't support it, actually. I mean, there's an ABC New Washington Post poll that found that Trump would beat a candidate perceived as a socialist by 49% to 43%, whereas other candidates uh, Jim, not perceived as socialists would beat him. So I'm just curious, are you convinced you have the public behind you? Jim, there's, there's a guy with the name Bernie Sanders. And I hope you will take a look at Bernie Sanders against Donald Trump and look at those head-to-head -head numbers and then report back to me what you find, Jim because I think you will find in the 25 
25 of the last 25 polls, Bernie Sanders is beating Donald Trump head to head in every poll out there. Uh, Can you challenge the me on that? Though, well, I could challenge you on the position because we're talking about positions that are his signature issues, and which don't have the Sanders. backing of uh, the majority of Democratic voters. And of course, those issues are going to be discussed, you know, uh, at absolutely. In the coming and months. what do you think, Jim, that most people know about Bernie Sanders? Do you, what do you think they know about him? He ran for president before and head to head in places like Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. He's crushing Donald Trump. How do you explain that to me, Jim? Well, listen, we'll let the voters decide. I'm just saying on the issues that you're making, your signature issues, the, the, the polls show they don't back those particular issues. And as voters learn about those issues, that might be factored into their decision. We're going to keep up the conversation because we got a lot of time till November 2020. Come back, Faz. Come back soon, okay? We, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Listen, Faz, let's cut to the chase. I just want you to accept and admit that socialism is bad. Can you just do that for me? Or if not, we're just, you know, we're going to cut off your mic. I mean, that's what it seemed like, you know, they were kind of leading towards. But he cited a poll where it found that someone who was perceived to be a socialist would lose to Donald Trump. Trump would win 49 to 43%. And then he poses the question, are you convinced that the public would be behind you given the results of this poll? Except what's the obvious response? You cherry picked the data. When you look at 29 polls, Bernie Sanders beats Donald Trump 28 times. And in the one poll where he loses to Donald Trump, other candidates weren't faring too well either. So Faiz was almost correct in saying Bernie Sanders beats Trump in 25 out of the last 25 polls. Maybe he's referring to internal polls. But I mean, the point is Bernie Sanders performs very well in hypothetical matchups against Donald Trump. And most importantly, he's beating Trump in the Rust Belt states that Hillary lost. And the last poll that just came out showed Bernie beating Trump by seven points. That's outside the margin of error. So by citing one poll that shows that Donald Trump would perform well against a generic socialist Democrat, you're not educating your viewers. You're cherry picking data in order to lend credence to this claim that, you know, a socialist would be inherently less electable against Donald Trump. But the data doesn't actually show that. I know you have that one poll, but we look at aggregate polling data if we want to be the most accurate because that's the most reliable. Like if you take any one poll, sure, there can be some value in that, but you just look like a liar. Like I understand that CNN wants to present themselves as neutral arbiters of information, but you're not helping with that case here when you do things like this. Now, another quote that I wanted to get here, uh, get to here, we're talking about positions which are his signature issues, which don't have the backing of the majority of Democratic voters. Now, he said this twice. Now, Bernie Sanders is a populist. He has the backing. His policies are backed by a majority of people. When you look at most of his policies, most Americans support it. But when you actually control for Democratic Party voters, they especially back Bernie's policy ideas. So what are you talking about? I mean, let's just look at Bernie Sanders and his signature policy proposal, for example, Medicare for All. So when you look at this poll that was conducted between June 29th and July 1st from the Morning Consult, it found that Democrats are actually the most supportive, I repeat, the most supportive of Medicare for All. And a majority of Democrats still support it even when you tell them it diminishes the role of private insurers. But 
100% supported when you tell them that they get to keep their doctors and still go to the same hospital. So, I mean, what are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? The policies that Bernie Sanders are promoting, they have majority support, but they're especially popular among Democratic Party voters. And it's not just Medicare for All. The Green New Deal is supported by over 90% of Democrats. A poll from May showed that Elizabeth Warren's plan to cancel most student debt has majority support. So I could only imagine that Bernie's plan to cancel 100% of student loan debt is even more popular, especially among Democrats. Most Americans support free college and raising the minimum wage. The overwhelming majority of Americans support paid maternity leave and government funding for childcare. And as I tell you about how popular all of these policies are that Bernie Sanders is proposing, they're popular among the majority of the population for the most part, but they are especially popular among Democratic Party voters. So what are you saying? These are incredibly popular policies among the Democratic Party base. And that's what you want to do to win an election, especially a primary. You throw out policies that you know will excite the base. It sounds to me like you just are not excited. You and your rich colleagues at CNN, who probably get paid six-figure salaries every single year to espouse corporate talking points, seems like you're the one who doesn't like this. And maybe you identify as a Democrat and you're a Democrat voter. I don't know what the case is. But what you're saying is factually incorrect. It's demonstrably untrue. And you should feel ashamed of yourself to say something like this. Because it's a verifiable lie. We could just look at one public opinion poll on any given policy from Bernie Sanders. And most of the time, that particular policy that he is championing will be supported by a majority of Americans and especially Democratic Party voters. But Faiz, again, he did a great job at shutting down this bias, but, I mean, how are you supposed to expect us to take you seriously when you keep doing things like this? Like, this isn't a one-off. This isn't a one-off. You keep presenting biased information, you clearly have contempt for Bernie Sanders and his supporters, and you expect us to trust you? Really? You're not calling it like you see it. You're not calling balls and stripes. It's evidence to everyone watching that you're trying to construct a narrative. You want voters to believe Bernie Sanders is less electable so they don't vote for him. So they vote for someone like Joe Biden who will maintain the corporate status quo. Uh, not going to happen because in the age of the internet, we can actually look stuff up now. We don't just have to take your word for it. I am here with 2020 congressional candidate Anthony Clark running against Danny K. Davis in Illinois' 7th congressional district, and he's here to talk about his campaign. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the program. No, no. Hello, everyone. How you doing? Hello. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I've been following your campaign now um, because this is the second time that you're running, and I wanted to have you on the first time. Didn't get you on, but now I'm writing that wrong. And <laughs> we're letting everyone know that you are a phenomenal candidate. You're one of the original Justice Democrats, members of brand new Congress. And I always ask this to candidates because there's a number of people running for Congress um, for a second time. You're one of several. So Cory Bush is another one who's running for Congress. Had her on the Shout show out. last time. Um, so what made you want to run for Congress? Because you're incredibly busy. You run a nonprofit. You have a lot going on. You're a teacher. So you're dedicating so much of your time and energy. Just running for Congress once, like I could imagine, would be exhausting. What made you want to do it a second time. Um, why why put yourself through this when you already are doing so much for your community? Yeah, definitely. Wonderful question. Uh, you know, thanks for asking it. Uh, you know, to understand why I ran the first time or why I'm running again, you know, it ties directly into my parents, uh, Ron and Blanche Clark. Shout out to them. Love them to death. 
uh, my best friends to this day. Uh, you know, just the sacrifices they made throughout their lives to an effort to provide me with greater opportunity. Right. Uh, access to opportunity. That's a key theme throughout our campaign and has been throughout my life. And then when you combine that with the fact that, you know, I, I obsess over Muhammad Ali, like I'm a huge Muhammad Ali fan, uh, you know, watch his fight still to this day, followed his fights, you know, followed his career inside and outside of the ring. And he was someone like my father, who I believe to be a true hero, uh, you know, to have true courage and to not always go with status quo. And one of his best quotes, uh, you know, that I continue to take with me and I actually have it. Uh, tatted on my forearm here. I don't think you, if you can see it or not, but it says yeah. the rent I pay uh, because mm -hmm. the Ali quote is service to others is the rent you pay for room here on this earth. Uh, so throughout my life, you know, I, I served in the military uh, that was not necessarily by choice. You know, I did find myself in some trouble as a youth, like many of us do, and, and trying to get myself out of that, you know, the military happened to be an option. Uh, so serving in the military and seeing firsthand the military industrial complex, uh, seeing firsthand how one person's patriot could be another person's terrorist, getting that exposure, uh, coming home, becoming a high school teacher, uh, seeing how our educational system is essentially broken, uh, how so many families and students uh, are failing within a public school system that's inequitable uh, because of the public funding model uh, that exists, how property taxes essentially fund our schools, uh, you know, founding a nonprofit, you know, prior to this new administration in 2016, focused on equity work, uh, you know, being the co-founder of a small business, employing at-risk youth, everything I've been doing, uh, you know, inside and outside of employment, you know, in the community has been an effort to pay rent, you know, because even as a black man in America, you know, I recognize the privilege I've had throughout my life, particularly having such a strong parental base, uh, you know, so that's what led me essentially to accept the nomination in the first place. Because when the community nominated me, you know, I was Village of the Year in 2017, whatever the hell that means. You know, I'm really not big on personal accolades. You know, I thank the community for that because we truly work together. But when I was nominated, I was hesitant at first, you know, because I never saw myself as a politician. Uh, I was jaded, you know, by our current representat representation, uh, how our current policies were going and so, so on and so forth. But when I sat down, I started thinking to myself as a teacher, as a nonprofit director, you know, as a small business co-owner, you know, as a community activist and organizer, I was essentially treating symptoms. I was never I never had the ability to truly target the root cause. So, for example, running a nonprofit, we would constantly do food, food drives, clothing drives, you know, for the homeless populations that exist. But we never got to the root cause of why homelessness exists and the fact that homeless housing should be a human right. Correct. So Absolutely. we weren't treating the root cause. Housing should be a human right. But at my level, I was essentially treating a symptom. The same people we were helping on Monday, they would still need help on Friday. So how could we change things on a systemic level? Uh, so when, again, when I was nominated, I finally figured out that running for office, accepting that nomination, becoming one of the OGs, which we are now, some of the originals, yep. uh, was the ability to truly get within Congress and change policy. We have to change policy. We have to change legislation. Uh, but legislation is even enough. We have to change the hearts and the minds of the American people if we truly want to address what I believe is a society built upon the genocide of natives and the enslavement of Africans and African descendants uh, to perpetuate capitalism and to promote and, and maintain white supremacy. If we're going to truly change that, we have to address root causes. And that's why I accepted the nomination. Uh, and anybody knows, hopefully, that anybody out there, if you run once, please run again. Because the way the machine and the establishment, the way some of the ways they maintain power is by building name recognition 
and counting on corporate dollars. You know, they're going to have more money than a grassroots candidate. And if they've been in office for 10 to 20 years, because, of course, uh, they like to maintain power, uh, they have larger name recognition. You know, so you have to run to lay a foundation. You know, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. I mean, they're superstars. You know, I look up to them. They're idols. Uh, you know, I know AOC personally. I thank her for everything she's done and in inspiring me and others. Uh, but not every race is going to be like that. You can mm -hmm. be awesome yourself, but it may take more than once. It may take more than two times. But the fight is that important. So for me, running once was never going to be an option. You run once. Of course, we were in it to win. We came up short, but we learned so much from that race. And now we're back building at a momentum. We're better prepared. And, and we're going to take it this time. And that's kind of what I'm hearing, and it's really inspiring. Like, Amy Valella is another individual who ran for Congress, and she didn't win. She came up short, but she kind of said mm -hmm. the same thing. Like, you know, I, I learned so much. Now I know what I need to do to win. I have the tools needed. And you brought up your representative. Um, So his name is Danny K. Davis. He's been in that seat since 1997. And when you compare someone like him who's entrenched within the political establishment to someone like you, I mean, I really feel like... It's no contest. It really is a matter of people knowing who you are and you're already so involved with your community. So you you're you're doing things to help people on a daily basis. Like you're not suspending the work that you're doing to help out your peers just because you're running for Congress. Like before we came on um, for viewers, Anthony was telling me about a program that he's doing to get people to donate fans to people in the heat and whatnot. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and some of the things that you're doing, like to help feed members mm -hmm. who are less fortunate in your community? Because I think that it can't be, you know, it can't be overstated how important this is because you're doing it one because you genuinely care but i think that this is a true representative like you're already representing people in the seventh district so talk a little bit about your nonprofit work and what you're doing because i find it just absolutely fascinating yeah yeah definitely first and foremost i want to give a shout out to amy it's her birthday today so happy birthday, happy birthday amy. amy uh that is the homegirl for life you know thank you for everything that you do love you and your family and thank you for believing in us uh, so, yeah. So in 2016, you know, prior to ever being a candidate, prior to ever being nominated, uh, again, being in the community and just seeing so many of my young students and families struggling uh, within a system that by design was not created uh, to empower them. I felt like I had to do more. You know, it wasn't enough to, you know, get inside the classroom. It wasn't enough to just organize and simply show up. I wanted to go further and actually create an organization uh, that, again, try to try to because we haven't yet but try to attack more of the root causes that exist uh so suburban unity alliance suburbanunity.org is my nonprofit organization we're 501c3 uh you know we're 100 percent volunteer based i make no money from this nonprofit because let's be honest some nonprofits are part of the issue as well i think yeah. we saw on the news today a uh, particular nonprofit that let go uh, of some uh employees that have disabilities uh because again it was hurting their bottom line uh, so, again, we are 100 percent grassroots, 100 percent volunteer based. And it's just about getting out and building bridges between communities uh, because we truly believe the health of one community directly impacts the health of other communities, like the health of an individual directly impacts the health of other individuals. So we've done a lot of work on building empathy, uh, building bridges between communities that you can literally cross the street and everything changes from the access to opportunity to the level of gun violence to food deserts that exist. Uh, so based upon that work, based upon building extremely strong coalitions with other organizations like Besta Proviso Township, uh, like Opark Call to Action, uh, like PASO, West Suburban Action Project, uh, we've been involved and had our hands in so many different things, uh, some things that I could throw out there. 
Uh, we had two young women who were attending my high school. Uh, they were victims, but I like to call them survivors and warriors of sex trafficking. And they were under uh, the Salvation Army uh, and they were living in a, a at a home called Ann's House. Well, the Salvation Army cut funding. Uh, so these young women, these two young women were essentially going to be left on the street. They had nowhere to go. Uh, they were going to have to leave the school that they were currently in at the time. Uh, so we put it out to the community. We organized. And in one day, we raised over $13,000. We found these two young women a uh, new placement, and they were able to, you know, continue their educational careers and, and, and finish high school. You know, they're able to graduate. Now, was it perfect? Again, did we treat the root cause? No. But at least we were getting out, trying to get behind and empower uh, these wonderful students, these wonderful young ladies. Uh, other things we've done, you know, uh, there was a rape that had occurred uh, in the school district. You know, young women came to us. Uh, we got behind them, empowered them. We created a petition, uh, actually got out into the community and literally changed the sexual assault policy, collaborating with other organizations uh, within the community. We've changed the racial equity policy within the community as well and actually had a racial equity coordinator position created through collaboration. Uh, we've helped to support PASO in passing welcoming village ordinances uh, within the local community. Uh, so, I mean, we could go on and on, you know, but yeah. it's powerful because it taps in and it builds empathy because I feel like throughout history, ignorance has also led to so many individuals being complicit in the dehumanization and oppression of others. Uh, you know, similar to what we're seeing with our immigrant populations currently. You dehumanize, so then uh, people on the outside that it's not directly impacting, oh, you know, it doesn't, they don't care. You know, this is not impacting me. You know, like, oh, the current president said these are rapists, these are drug dealers. Who cares? But we should all care because, again, it should impact us as human beings. Uh, so we've engaged in that work. You know, one of the biggest things, and I'll leave it here because we could go on and on. There was a local church uh, that was being harassed by white supremacist organizations. Uh, they reached out to our organization. We were able to fundraise. We purchased this local church, a state-of-the-art security system to surround the church. And we took it further than that. We actually went to the church, uh, you know, got trained on filling out DACA renewal applications. So we would go there almost every week and sit with DREAMers. And learn more about their lives, you know, learn more about their journeys and their truths and help them fill out these forms uh, to fight, you know, to fight to remain in this country that they've given so much to. And it was interesting that so many people didn't even realize that many of our undocumented population, they actually pay taxes. You know, they're mm -hmm. working. They're paying taxes. They're giving to a community that does not give back to them. Uh, you know, so things like that help to break down those ignorances, hopefully, and help to break down those barriers. Uh, so that's what we've engaged in at SUA. You know, we're fighters. We rock the boat. Uh, you know, I've been in trouble often for rocking the boat, you know, through my organization, suspended several times. My life has been threatened. I've been attacked. Uh, but the community has always stepped up and support and protest and sit-ins, uh, you know, and really have our backs because they believe in, again, it's bigger than just legislation. Like, we're actually fighting, you know, an ideological war. And, you know, that's what we engage in. And this is why, it, like, you're already a representative or the representative. It's just a matter of now, you know, you can get elected and gain the power to really treat these root causes, which you talked about. And it's remarkable. Mm -hmm. Like, few people do this because, you know, it, it requires a lot of time. It requires a lot of dedication. And it can be demoralizing, you know, seeing all of these things that are going on, all these issues in your community. But it, it's just, it's a dedication that I see with congressional candidates. That you don't see, like when you when you juxtapose the work that you're doing with any member of Congress, you just see that detachment. Like they're not in their communities; they don't even right. hold town halls often, you know. So no, it's it's so it, it, the difference is night and day between candidates like you, progressive grassroots funded candidates, and basically anyone from the establishment. So what I usually do on the show is 
whenever I get a candidate on, we'll do like these rapid fire questions while I'll ask you something and, you know, see if you check all the boxes, the progressive boxes, just so people know how progressive you are. But I realized that that's pointless because you, these candidates running, everyone, including you, you check all the boxes and you are phenomenal. Right. And all these ideas that you're proposing are are absolutely uh they'd be life-changing basically so let me just go through a couple of them medicare for all reparations for american descendants of slavery uh canceling student loan debt like these are things that you lay out in your ad and when i looked at your website one thing that really stood out to me which is kind of i, I wouldn't say new but it, it's talked about less often is um you mentioned animal rights and anti-cruelty legislation so i mean these are things that we're not hearing being discussed in congress um so with that being said along those lines of policy let's say you're elected to congress and there's all these issues like you have a 100 point plan as to what you want to do i think you have a more robust policy platform than most people running for president so what do you do when you're elected like how do you focus like what would be your main priorities because i don't know where i would begin just personally if i were elected i don't know where i would start so what do you think Mm -hmm. you would do as an elected member of congress um Mm -hmm. within the first year what would you fight for you know initially so to answer that question first and foremost i think you know, many of us understand that the issues are interconnected, so they require interconnected solutions. And for me, it starts at a micro and a macro level when I become the next representative of Illinois 7th Congressional District, because within our district, it's extremely gerrymandered. I mean, we have communities within our district where the median household income is around $110,000. And then you could go literally across the street and the median household income drops down to $34,000. I mean, that's vast disparity that exists. And often these communities have operated with metaphors and physical walls between them where they're not collaborating, they're not working together to truly push for improvements. So at a micro level, when I become the next representative, I'm going to take the work we've already been doing, you know, as a nonprofit uh, leader, as a teacher, you know, as a community activist and organizer to knock down these metaphorical and physical walls and to get our communities to work stronger together, you know, to come together. Because again, in the Austin community, we have food deserts within the 7th Congressional District. So where do individuals have to shop? You know, either at a corner store, eating processed foods, or they have to go into a community like Oak Park, bring their money so their money doesn't even remain in their community uh, to invest in other communities because they need to eat proper food and proper produce. So let's work together. Let's talk about the importance of building co-ops, cooperatives, empowering people within our communities on the ground. So using that influence to further educate, because honestly, the Democratic Party benefits just like the Republican Party, I think, from you know lack of voter education, low voter turnout, uh, you know the jadedness of many voters like I had I had been before in my lifetime. So we have to address those issues on a micro level, you know, truly build coalitions on the ground, truly use our influence to strengthen all communities and have communities work together and empower each other. And at a macro level, of course, we have, I mean, four wonderful congr- congresspersons right now with strong representation, you know, truly speaking truth to power, truly rocking the boat. Uh, So I think once I win this seat and once I get into office, one of my roles is to get behind them, back them and help to empower them, use whatever privilege I have to further strengthen their messages. Uh, Because again, we see how the establishment is responding. We see how the Republican Party is responding. When you rock the boat, when you don't accept status quo like our incumbent in the seventh has been doing for decades, you are identified as a problem. And again, we need support. You know, we really do. So I want to support them and all of their efforts and all their work. And I think for everything that we're fighting for, uh, the climate is the most important issue, honestly, because we don't have an earth to live on right now. We have, what, 11 years left to address this existential crisis. So the Green New Deal 
has to be at the top of the list. We have to truly fight for and support the Green New Deal. We're building support on the ground. You know, shout out to Sunrise Movement, Sunrise Movement Chicago. We've been doing a lot of collaborative work with them. So many wonderful young leaders out there. Again, not waiting, not being patient, not patiently knocking on the door. They're kicking the door down because they know how important these issues are. Uh, and again, you know, climate change is extremely important. The Green New Deal, I think, is first and foremost uh, the main issue that I would like to fight for, get behind, and help support. And then after that, of course, you name many of them. Uh, you know, we have to address the military-industrial complex uh, because education is a huge issue within our community. I think we could take the billions of dollars that we're spending on our military and our warped sense of what patriotism is and redirect that to community infrastructure, to our educational systems that are inequitably funded by property taxes. Uh, so we have to address those issues. The war on drugs has to end, no question. You know, we were the only campaign in 2018 to push for the legalization of cannabis with a focus on racial justice. You know, we weren't waiting on the wave. We weren't waiting on the community to step up. We were being bold and taking that stand. Of course, single-payer health care is extremely important. All these things lead to, you know, greater job opportunity, greater infrastructure investment, and overall empowerment for the people that exist. And like you mentioned, we're, we're fighting for bold issues as well, like reparations. You know, if you, if you understand that, again, throughout history, the government has played a direct role in oppressing individuals locally and at a federal level, the, uh, determining that, Black and brown communities primarily do not build generational social and economic wealth. You will understand the importance of reparations. It cannot just be one check. Mm -hmm. It cannot just be one check because many of our white families and our white allies, they built their wealth through what? Home ownership, passing that value down, that property down through generations. You're able to build up generational wealth through redlining, through Jim Crow, through slavery. Many individuals have not been able to do that. So we have to address those issues so we could go on and on. But the most important thing, again, at the end of the day is to understand that we have to build stronger coalitions and we have to recognize that, yes, we have to fight for and push bold legislation like the decrim of sex work. We didn't mention that yeah. for 100 percent, the decriminalization of sex work. That's extremely important. But also we have to fight this ideological war and we cannot be afraid to face down white supremacy, stare it in the eyes and let it know we're not stopping. And call it what it is. Like, I think a lot of oh, people straight, yeah. are conditioned by Republicans to like not call Tucker Carlson, for example, a white supremacist or not call racism racism. But you see people who in Congress are not backing down now. Like the way that progressives and democratic socialists have moved this conversation, it really is remarkable. Like I still think that the Overton window is shifted too far to the right. But just to see how far we've moved dialogue. It's amazing. And this is kind of and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. The way that I feel and what I'm learning as we see more and more congressional races is that it's a matter of getting your name out. Like, I, I truly believe that if enough people know you uh, and they don't just go off of name recognition of your opponent, you win like 10 times out of 10, you'd win. So talk a, a little bit about your opponent because you're running against uh, Danny K. Davis. Um, what is it about him that you think needs to be challenged? Why is he inadequate in representing your community? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, great question. I think it's impossible to call yourself a progressive if the district that you represent is not progressing or if you're not actively fighting for progress. I think too often, you know, within our political scope and realm, Yes, we have like Republican candidates that a Democrat may challenge that gets a lot of attention, right? Because, of course, we want to flip a district, we want to flip an area. Or we have an unpopular Democratic representative that maybe oftentimes votes Republican or, you know, just, you know, is against, you know, progressive issues such as LGBTQIA plus rights, women's rights, so on and so forth. So it's easy to get the community up. You know, it's easy to get the community to pay attention and support, you know, an uprising grassroots candidate. But somebody like Danny K. Davis, who's been in office for decades and decades, 
to me, you know, I thank him for his service. I'm not a negative individual, but he's just essentially maintained status quo. Individuals like him survive on voting the right way. But you have to also fight. You have to also be bold. Don't wait till someone else comes forward and pushes the legalization of cannabis, which he was against in 2018. But then now you feel the pressure and now you see the wave. So now, oh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll sponsor it. I'll co-sponsor it. I'll jump on the wave. We have to create the wave. And he hasn't created any progressive waves in this district for decades and decades. I mean, our unemployment rate used to be at four times the national average. It's still at 2.5 percent the national average. Uh, individuals in our community are moving out by droves. Illinois is either one, two or three across the nation and individuals moving out of the state. And our district leads Illinois in regards to individuals moving out of the city. Uh, you know, communities like the Austin community, they're dealing with gun violence on a daily and weekly basis. I have lost 11 students to gun violence in my 10 years of teaching. I'm wearing one on my wrist right now. Elijah Sims was murdered, shot in the head a day before his 17th birthday. And we go out into the community constantly fighting for justice for him, fighting to address the root cause issues that led to gun violence that took his life and others' lives. It's a serious issue that exists. We have food deserts. I mean, there's a video online. I challenge people to look it up. You could type in Danny Davis and Arnie Duncan. I know if you're familiar with Arnie Duncan, Mr. Privatization. I'm 100% against privatization of our prison industries, of our educational systems, of course, of our health care. Because, again, any privatization puts profit before the people. We have multiple school closures that exist in our district, multiple mental health facility closures that exist, lack of infrastructure investment in our communities. We could go on and on. I mean, how we're impacted by our environment, the lead in our water, the lead in our paint, the high levels of asthma that exists, the heroin highway that exists. I mean, there's so many different connections. So at the end of the day, I thank him for his service, but he's been someone that's been focused on individual power, maintaining status quo, not rocking the boat. Meanwhile, we're coming along at being extremely bold, building bold coalitions and pushing for progressive issues and for change. And we're not waiting. We're setting the trends. We're not waiting for the trend to set itself and then jumping on. We're setting it and moving forward and trying to help educate the community on why it's important to be progressive and bold, why it's important to empower people and recognize that the government has played a role. The government is part of the problem, which includes the Democratic Party. Uh, so, I mean, it's no question to me it's time for change. And if you look at our website, as you stated, I think we have, what, 24 policy positions, fully articulated policy positions. I'm leaving no room for any loopholes, no, loop, no room for pandering, no room for backing off. You know exactly where we stand and exactly what we're fighting for because it's that important. Thank you for saying that because it's really important, especially in these types of races, like you're not running against someone who is a Democratic superstar, like you're not challenging someone with a lot of name recognition or has particularly been a target to progressives and social Democrats. So it is important for you to really lay out, I think, these key distinctions like you can't just ride the wave of change. You have to be a leader. And if anybody in your community has been a leader, it's been you. So I don't think anyone who's watching this, who's a regular viewer of the Human Support, is not going to be convinced. So now we go to what do we do to guarantee your victory because i think this time you're gonna win um so how do we guarantee that win what can we do to help you can we phone bank if we don't live in illinois right um oh, yes. can we donate what where can we go Definitely. give us give us what Definitely. we can do yeah i mean and i'll tell a quick story when we ran in 2018 the incumbent and his team spent inordinate amount of hours stealing our yard signs you know harassing us he told me to my face the reason he was going to win was because he had 30 years of name recognition and literally his slogan 
on his literature was the name you know like that was his slogan wow the, the name you know uh so we have to build name recognition yeah. and our campaign our team is out there on a daily basis canvassing door knocking phone banking building relationships with community members and yet i'm still teaching full-time yet i'm still running my nonprofit full-time because that work is extremely important so one thing you definitely can do is spread the message. You know, if you listen to this interview today, if you like what you hear, if you like what you see, if you visit our website at VoteAnthonyClark.com and you truly believe in the movement that we are part of, let your friends know. Let your families know. Call everybody you know in Chi-Town, in Chicago, in Oak Park, in the entire 7th Congressional District and let them know, hey, there's an option out there. There's somebody out there truly fighting for change and you can believe in them and they're going to support you as an individual and as a collective. We also need donations. Yes, donations are extremely important. Again, we're not going against an incumbent that's, you know, extremely popular, extremely controversial. They just exist. They're just there allowing their communities to suffer while they maintain individual power. So individual small donations, because we're 100 percent grassroots. We took the pledge. We're taking zero corporate money. We're taking zero medical or pharmaceutical money by the way the incumbent is. He says he's, again, jumping the wave of Medicare for all. But yet you're taking money from pharmaceutical companies, thousands of dollars. You say you're for immigrant rights, but yet you're taking thousands of dollars from Amazon, who is known to work with the Department of Homeland Security and ICE. So these are huge issues. And because often we don't pay attention, we allow individuals to co-opt and cloak themselves in progressivism. So, again, spread the message, help build name recognition. You can phone bank if you don't live locally. We have a wonderful online system. Reach out to us. Uh, through VoteAnthonyClark.com, and you can sign up to volunteer. Uh, donate, donate, donate. And I'll be honest with you. My team gets on me all the time because I'm a horrible fundraiser. I'll be straight up with you. I know how many of us are struggling out there. I know how hard it is. I have bill collectors calling me <laughs> on a weekly basis. So I know, but I guarantee you, if you have a dollar to spare, $5 to spare, $10 to spare, $20 to spare, know that it's going to a righteous cause. And I'm not taking your donation in vain because I'm giving everything we have. I'm giving everything I have and everything we have as a team to truly fight. So go to VoteAnthonyClark.com, sign up to volunteer, help share the link, spread the message, donate if you can, because that's truly going to help us continue to take the fight to the Democratic establishment and to the Republican Party as well. And to the overall institution and system that exists uh, that oppresses individuals like ourselves. Uh, so that's extremely important. And. Thank you for running as well. Let me just add um, a little bit to your pitch as well. And I always say this, so it sounds redundant, but this is a national movement. Like this isn't just about the seventh congressional district. Of course, right. Anthony is running to represent that. But what if you donate to Anthony and you don't live in the seventh district, that still essentially is an investment because I mean, look at Ilhan Omar. She's not from my state, but she just sponsored legislation that would cancel my student loan debt. So by supporting these candidates monetarily exactly. and just through sharing the message, this is something that will benefit you personally. And it's, this is an investment. And, you know, we're, we're laying the groundwork for revolutionary change in this country. And it starts by just giving up a buck or two if that's all you can spare, because a little bit goes a long way. And if a lot of people Definitely. do a little bit, it has a huge difference. So go to voteanthonyclark.com. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the program. Um, again, I apologize for not bringing you on in 2018. I miss <laughs> you. I miss so many candidates, but I'm writing that wrong this time. Thank you so Definitely. much. Is there anything else you want to say before we leave? No, you know, I just want to, you know, give a shout out and truly thank each and everybody that's in this fight. You know, uh, another quote that I love, and I'm going to end it with this, is Martin Luther King. You know, his quote is, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, keep moving forward. So many of us continue to move forward, push for progress. But also remember, self-care is extremely important because this fight is daunting. It takes a lot out of us. It's a marathon, not a sprint. But I sincerely thank and appreciate each and every one of you that play a role in moving us forward. 
And again, challenge yourselves, look yourselves in the mirror after this interview and also ask yourself, what are you willing to risk and sacrifice for real change? Because we have to do more than Facebook posts. We have to do more than just show up at a march on a Saturday, then go back to work within the same system Monday through Friday that led to the oppression we were marching against. It's really going to take us sacrificing and putting ourselves on the line for systemic change. But again, love you all. Vote AnthonyClark.com. All power to the people. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far and listened to me speak for that long. I truly appreciate your viewership. You can always support the show by liking the video and sharing our content. And it really does go a long way because in YouTube's algorithm where independent media is deprioritized, the fact that you like and even dislike videos, quite frankly, it shows that we have viewers that are engaged with the content and it goes a long way. It truly helps. So anything you can do, liking, commenting, subscribing, doing all that other shit that YouTubers tell you to do. Uh, now I'm going to need you to do that so we don't continue to be deprioritized in YouTube's algorithm. But um, I digress. Let's go ahead and end the show. Uh, shout out to everyone who supports the show. I will see you all next week. My name is Mike Figueredo. Take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>